Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode will host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land, and welcome to Juanced, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world, and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. I guess that makes me Dan Pfefferman, and together we're excited you're here with us for another great episode of the show. Before we get going, I'd love to give a shout out to our audience watching us today on Facebook Live. Thanks for tuning in. For those of you listening on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all the other podcast platforms, know that there's a live video version of the podcast which you can check out weekly. It's available on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Podcast. Check it out there when we record or watch all our episodes in our YouTube channel, Juanced Podcast, as well as our website, www.juanced.com. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram. We're at Juanced or on Twitter, at Juanced Podcast. And as always, make sure to subscribe to Juanced and Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And please, 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 please leave us a five-star review. It really makes a difference. So our guest today, Rabbi Alon Melters, is joining us today from <laughs> Sydney, Australia. We'll give a proper intro later, but I'd like to say that for him, it's six in the morning. For us, it is uh, nine or sorry, six fifteen in the morning uh, in Australia, nine fifteen here in Israel. Uh, and him and I probably are both as tired as one another because for him, it's really early in the morning, and for me, I'm a day after my second COVID vaccine, and I think that the only side effect. Food, food, thank God that it's given me so far is that I just feel like I'm out of it and really, really like unfocused. But, so, but congratulations, it's liberating alone. Have you been uh, vaccinated yet? Are you guys vaccinating down there? No, they, they've only they just started uh, beginning of the week, oh, wow. uh, vaccinating first uh, frontline uh, defenders. And uh, I don't think I'll be vaccinated until October. It's still a real, I, I gotta say though, from pure e- human being. For, from everything I'm reading, Australia has been unbelievable as far as barely having any COVID right now. You guys had Dictator Dan. We've, we've been very lucky. Like you know, there's there's a lot of merit in being an island on the other side of the world, um, and that's a nice you know it's a nice a positive piece. But the reality is that our government has has done an incredible job it, there have been there have been mistakes uh both local and federal but to the to the most part it's been incredible just to watch you know the way in which uh the government has responded and the way in which people care deeply about the sanctity of life and the value of life and the importance of of being part of a community it's just it's been really very special if, if, you, if I, you, I wonder what that's like <laughs> yeah being part of a community if you could for our listeners just briefly describe what the government's main uh plans of action or actions that they took are because i know that australia uh and even new zealand are quite different from here in israel europe united states of course right so i think the biggest thing was 
the initial response, which was close down the borders. Um, again, being on an island, a lot easier to do that. There isn't the same you know, entry points and different pieces to play with, less uh, moving parts. But shutting down the borders early uh, was a huge piece. Um, and then lockdown. Lockdown, that initial lockdown saved lives uh, across the board. How long People were you locked down initially? How long, how long was the initial lockdown? It, look, it varies depending on each state. New Zealand did a hard lockdown for, I think, six weeks in the beginning um, and wiped the virus out effectively. We had, I was home from, I had the kids home from school for 78 days. Wow. Um, Holy shit. So that was, that was the lockdown. But it, initially, and in, in, in New South Wales, the lockdown wasn't, um, you weren't, you were allowed to go out of your house. You were allowed to go shopping, like, for essential items, you were allowed to walk in your community type play, type, you know, that kind of movement. Um, in Victoria, it was much more, uh, more strict. And Victoria is Melbourne for everyone listening. Yeah. So Sydney is New South Wales. Victoria is the state in which Melbourne. Uh, they lovingly called that guy Dictator Dan, right? Yeah. There was a thing with well, his the I, leader. I, was... I'm, a, I'm not. I, look, I don't know enough about about Dan. And I think that, you know, he made a bit a few mistakes and not a few, he made a number of mistakes. Um, but I think the reality is that in a country of 25 million, we've had, you know, 40,000 cases, I think. And oh, it's pretty low. Yeah. And I think you guys couldn't travel from, correct me if I'm wrong, from state to state, you were pretty much, you were like in your area. That was it. Yeah. Well, that, that was definitely interesting because I think the, the restriction of movement was really, I think people were okay with that at the beginning. Um, there is still a lot of restriction of movement today. Um, we haven't had a case in New South Wales for 35 days. That's incredible. Um, Victoria had a bit of an outbreak and went into a lockdown last week for five days, lockdown 3.0. Um, but Western Australia, for example, has had you know two cases in the last six months or something. Yeah. And they I, I heard they had like a case there. and locked down the entire city, right? Yeah. And they're, yeah, that's right. Uh, and their borders have been closed pretty much for a year. And I think for, you know, the difference between Australia and somewhere like America is America, the, the idea of the state was something normal. Uh, state had different laws, different things. In Australia, yeah, there, there are differences between states, but those differences weren't very exaggerated. And I don't think anyone saw themselves as Victorians first or New South Wales yeah. first. Like we were Australian. Uh, and this has really shown a, a major shift and a divide within the country. Um, and I think that's probably one of the biggest sticking points. There hasn't, hasn't been a universal sort of understanding of what's a hotspot, what's, what's worthy of closing borders. Those are a few issues. But ultimately, uh, the, the lockdown, closing down borders, you know, restricting movement was one huge piece. But the other piece that the government took on, and this was really interesting from a conservative government and a conservative government that had made quite a number of mistakes um, in dealing with the bushfires that we dealt with last year. Um, and there was yeah, a who, lot who of remembers that remembers. <laughs> it was like a, a I'm massive sure you guys thing. remember, of course, but here it was like, like the second COVID happened. Nobody was talking about that anymore. It disappeared. Exactly. Oh, it's like, it's like well, we were talking about those things had caused, had st- you know, the bushfires had stopped by that point. Um, but I tell you, you know, last summer that was, it was like living in hell. Uh, the sky was orange for for weeks. I remember the pictures. Yeah, air quality was terrible, and the government made a lot of mistakes. And I think people were very worried once COVID happened. You know, is the government going to 
making mistakes. But what we saw was a government that ended up being compassionate, caring, um, really a government that acted for the benefit of its of its uh, citizenship. And we saw relief payments. We saw a huge stimulus um, expenditure. We've seen continued care and, and insurance around job protection. And I, the reality is that I think, you know, Australia and New Zealand as well is, are going to be placed you know, to really thrive as we, as we move out of this, uh, this pandemic. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, yeah, here, you know, I'm, I'm now over a week. So I'm about 10 days after my second shot. Um, and we now have this green passport, which is called, it's kind of like the government's not making people vaccinate, but it is creating incentives for people to vaccinate um, by, by opening up certain parts of the country that are non-essential for people who have been vaccinated. So, uh, you know, r- regular listeners on the show will, will know that I'm really big into uh, my CrossFit and my lifting weights. And I was finally, finally, finally able to get back today to, uh, to, to my CrossFit, to Rose Valley. And it was just so nice to work out heavy weights, to work out in a group, to see other people. Um, it was awesome. Uh, last night, this was cool. So la- yesterday um, and, and today was my Hebrew birthday. So Yud Adal, the 10th of Adal. Um, yep. Happy birthday, Dan. Thank you. Uh, so um, we went out for a wine and cheese evening, which was really cool. Uh, and I guess according to the regulations, they set it up at someone's house, uh, and, you know, we we were a few couples, and we had like a fromagier, which is apparently a thing. And Can you say that word again? Fromagier, fromagier. You wish you were fromagier. I I always wish I was fromagier. <laughs> had a fantastic, fantastic cheese spread. Um, I've never eaten so much cheese in my life. <laughs> I think I paid the price for it afterwards. <laughs> sure, so, you did. So. Uh, so that was cool. So that was cool. And, and uh, yeah, just getting back, starting to get back to life, um, not having to worry so much. As we said in our COVID update, which, which those who are listening on the podcast uh, platforms will know it's working. Um, so please, people, go get your vaccines. Don't be a moron. Don't be a jabroni. And if you don't want to get I your... Just, if, I could, if I could just maybe correct you on one point, I think that the... the a big call to get back to normal, to get back to things. But I think we've got to realize that uh, there are a lot of the changes that have occurred uh, and a lot of the realizations that have sort of come to pass and come to light uh, show us that the, the old normal was not so good. And I think we've got to think about what, what, what is the new world we're creating. So let's get, in, uh, let's get into that. Let's get into the new world. Before true. we do, please tilt your camera a little bit down. Hold on a second. Go back to the... Camera shot. And just make sure. We we want to make sure that our, our viewers can understand that you're literally ensconced in a room of books. They but look. That like, we also see you. They look like they're gonna fall on you. Like I think there's a Rashi set up there that's gonna fall on your head at any minute if there's any kind of yeah, earthquake. No, they're, they're safe. They're good. They're good. They're good. Okay. All right, guys. So check it out. Uh, Juanced, as you know, is a listener-supported podcast. We rely on the generous support of listeners like you to make sure that we're able to deliver excellent content week after week. So, uh, Dan, how many countries are we in right now? I think we're up to what, like ninety? Ninety-three countries. That's awesome, and it is awesome. And we still don't have any Omanis. So, if you're listening and you have access to the Omani listener uh, radio market, please do tell your friends and Yemen. 
Yemen? Yemen and Oman. That's so that's so bizarre. Are we in Syria? We are in Syria. It's like one person, but yeah, we are in Syria. That's that's terrific. But uh, you know, you know the way it works, and if you're listening from week to week, and this is kind of like a running joke, but we are having fun with this. Is that our platform that tracks our listeners um, is a map, and the more listeners and downloads we have from different countries, the darker the um, the country on the map is filled in. So if it's one listener or t- ten listeners, it'll be a very light shade, and then you know a uh, thousand listeners, two thousand listeners will be a, a, a very dark shade. Um, and so, you know, the U.S. and Israel are, of course, very dark. India, Canada, uh, Australia, um, where where our guest is from today. Right. Um, U.K. And then across Europe, there's different shades. You know, some European countries are, are 5, 10 people, but we have European countries with 50, 100 uh, listeners. Um, and then across the Middle East, this is really cool. So, of course, in the UAE, where we have a lot of friends, um, it's growing. But also Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, um, you know, I was really surprised. Egypt, uh, Algeria, Morocco, and then of course all across Africa. Um, it's it's cool. The listenership is starting to grow, even Southeast Asia. Very cool, very cool. So, if you're from one of those countries, like we say week after week, please reach out to us. We'd love to try to do an episode one day about uh, Juan's listeners in far off and uh, not obvious places. Uh, but until then, again, listener supported con- uh, uh, po- content on our podcast. Please feel free to leave your mark by making a weekly, uh, uh, sorry, a one-time contribution on our uh, PayPal account. Or even better. A recurring and ongoing monthly contribution on our Patreon account. We'd really appreciate your support. You know, uh, this is a passion project of uh, Benny and mine, and we want to keep it going. So for more information, check us out on our website, www.juanced.com. We'll also throw in there another option. If uh, you are uh, any kind of Jewish community or Hillel organization or synagogue. Um, Jewish Federation. Or, or even non-Jewish community, just like what we're doing. Uh, we also do something called Juanced Live, where we will produce um, basically a live panel event or a live podcast just for you and your community. And you can either choose the guest. We can plan it together. We can bring the guest. We've done a couple of these already with Meet the Emiratis where we brought a panel of our friends from the United Arab Emirates. We can do it on any subject. Uh, so if you're interested in that, check it out on the website, www.juance.com and contact us for more information. Terrific. So it's that time of the week, everybody, for our uh, segment that we'd love to forget, the weekly COVID report brought to you by Dr. Natan Davidovich. Uh, I got I to gotta say, though, Benny, you know, from week to week, at least for now, the, the forecast is getting a little more positive. It's getting a little better. So Nathan Davidovich is the uh, director of R&D over there at BrainQ, and he's a leading COVID data scientist here in Israel. Uh, and, and he gives us our weekly COVID update data that let you know what's going on here in Israel and around the world in the COVID front. So this week... Ba- basically, I mean, just, just so you understand the context, if you're just jumping in here for the first time, uh, Nathan's a good friend. We had him on the show. He took upon himself with all the misinformation... And all the lack of information out there on COVID, Natan, who is trained um, in the sciences, has a PhD, and his wife uh, also has a PhD specifically in uh, epidemiology, um, kind of took it upon themselves to look at publicly available data and, um, a- and properly analyze it and put the trends in their proper context. There's so much misinformation going out there, and people who might be generally educated but are not actually educated in the sciences who are saying things, uh, including things that are, that are potentially harmful, calling people not to vaccinate or calling people this, based on, on just shaky understandings of the science. So here's the deal, guys, from Nathan's, uh, from Nathan to you. 
Is the Pfizer vaccine effective even against the British mutation that currently accounts for more than 90% of Israeli COVID cases? Yes. How effective? 94% according to preliminary findings. I'm vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine. Are you vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine? I am. I am more than a week after it, which means I have my green passport card. Awesome. We have seen sharply declining COVID numbers in both Israel and the United States over the past month. Does this mean we are finally going back to life as we once knew it? The answer here is a little more murky, people. If you look at the data, you see the great news that the number of severe cases in the 60-plus age group decreased dramatically following the second vaccine dose, while other age groups continued to rise. Clear evidence that the vaccine is doing its job. However, these graphs also show some more concerning trends. In all of the younger age groups, severe cases continue to rise despite the long lockdown and despite the fact that the number of infections decreased during the same time period. This seems to indicate that as the British mutation became more and more prevalent, the severity of COVID infection also increased, which has some preliminary support from other studies written by people much smarter than me. So, despite highly encouraging vaccine news, many remain unvaccinated. You know what? If you're unvaccinated, go get vaccinated. If you can't, don't don't be a, don't be a don't be a jabroni. That's what yeah, you don't like be to a say. jabroni. Don't be a schwanz. <laughs> go get vaccinated. Do your part. Let's 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 make the world go back and be a better place. Be the place you that know, we once knew. You know loved, what? So. I I am not um, scientifically educated. Neither are you. But our friend Natan is, and I will reference. He got the vaccine. And I will reference a an argument that I witnessed him have with one of these such people who are urging people uh, not to vaccinate or yet not to vaccinate yet online, uh, and that someone is not scientifically educated. Not said flat out. Find me serious scientists, serious scientists, research scientists who are showing um, negative things, who are calling people not to vaccinate. Find them, show the studies, put it out there, and, and he said you can't find it because it's not there, because it seems to be working. Yeah. So, like we said, go get vaccinated. Uh, and if you don't, you're going to leave open the very real possibility of yet another wave to come in the not-so-distant future, driven primarily by new virus mutations. So much depends on continued vaccination and maintaining mask wearing, social distancing. I know we hate that word. I hate that word. Dan hates that word, social distancing. It's against our human nature, but... Keep doing it, particularly among those that are not vaccinated. And let's bring this garbage period of our lives to an end. What say you? Yeah, I'm in. All right, man. So, uh, so yeah, with that, everybody, uh, that's the COVID weekly COVID report. We'll be back here next week, hopefully, for some continued good news. So, um, Dan, please introduce our guest. Yeah, there's, there's a lot I want to get into today. So, so this is a fun guest. It's a special guest. Um, I've been excited to have him on the show. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting Rabbi Alon Meltzer, would have been almost two years ago, um, when he and his wonderful team at Shalom Sydney, and he'll tell us about what that is, invited me to speak at uh, Limud, and uh, I was among a group of um, of speakers from mostly from Israel and the United States, and uh, Alon hosted us for part of it in his house. Uh, besides being all the things that I'm going to say now, he's also, he's a true Renaissance man, a true Renaissance man, a terrific uh, cook, a foodie, a wine and whiskey connoisseur, um, pretty pretty good, well-dressed man, wears a sharp suit. And on top of all that, on top of all that, uh, a rabbi and a scholar and a thinker and a community builder. So Rabbi Alon Meltzer, who is speaking to us now live from Sydney, Australia, which is why he's upside down to some of 
our viewers here, <laughs> uh, grew up in Auckland, New Zealand, and involved there in most aspects of the Jewish community. So now in uh, Sydney, he's the rabbi of Ol Hadash Synagogue, and he's the director of programs at Shalom, a cultural education organization, and he's a doctoral student, and most importantly, he's a father to three wonderful daughters, and he's an expert on top of all that, and on top of being an expert in Jewish law, uh, and a cook, and all that stuff I said, he's an expert in medieval Jewish history, he's a graduate of the University of Auckland and Yeshiva University, and uh, welcome to the show, Alon Meltzer. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And thank you. I wish I could be in person, but as, as we said, different I world. I know, I know. And I see we have actually some of our friends, uh, including David Sandbell, who was uh, part of that uh, Limud delegation. Hi, David. Um, the, the Facebook is on about a, what is it, a 30 second or a minute delay behind right. us. So uh, uh, just a shout out to all the listeners out there who are joining on the live. You're welcome to leave comments and questions on the feed, and we will try to address them throughout the conversation. Um, so what, what is Sydney? You, uh, sorry, what is Shalom? Shalom Sydney, this organization that you had uh, programming at. So Shalom is, a, is an organization that's been around for a number of decades um, and it's gone through a number of different evolutions over the past uh, couple of years or past couple of decades. Um, originally, the organization started as a residential college for Jewish students at the University of New South Wales, um, sitting alongside you know, your Catholic and your Presbyterian, your Anglican colleges, um, an opportunity for, for Jews who perhaps didn't feel they could fit in in a residential life uh, on campus and other, in other you know, sort of situations uh, were, had the opportunity to come to, to Shalom. Over the years, the Jewish community sort of, I don't know, stopped wanting to live on campus. Um, most people stayed at home. We don't have this whole campus experience feel like like in america that you have to go off and live on live on site so the college uh, numbers sort of the demographics started changing and it really became an international college um, based around jewish values at the same time we realized that as a communal organization uh, we had to really start engaging more broadly in the community um, we have um, at that point we had uh, hillel running out of uh, out of the college, we had Orgis, the Australasian Union, Union of Jewish Students, running out of the college, and started to do a number of different pieces of adult education. Alona, I, I want to, if I if I could just stop you for one second, maybe, and I don't mean to, to interrupt, but I, I want to maybe say the most used phrase in our, in in many podcasts. I want to take a step back for a moment and try to introduce our listeners to uh, to the Australian and the the New Zealand Jewish communities because I think that it's something that many of us here on this hemisphere kind of don't know about or take for uh not take for granted but really just kind of don't don't understand because we're very uh oriented towards either israel or the united states right. or, or, or europe uh and 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 maybe we know something about the jewish communities of latin america but but there you know there's this whole other world out there which is kind of literally at the at the very far end of you know the world i like to say it's as far as you can go in this direction before you start going back the other way so uh, give us a little bit of like the if there was an ID card of the Australian and the New Zealand Jewish communities, uh, what does it look like? And, and actually, at, at the end of that, let's circle back to Shalom, because uh, when I got to know you guys and I got to see a little bit of what you're doing, it's a really unique and I think a model that maybe other Jewish communities could learn from. So, so after we learn about the Australian and the New Zealand Jewish communities, then let's circle back and uh, and and jump back into the weeds of Shalom. Awesome. Great. So- 
Look, the Australian and New Zealand Jewish communities are very, very interesting. Um, they have really long and, and deep histories. And I, I would say that they're almost the fulfillment of, of, of prophecy in that the Jews will be scattered across the four corners of the world. Um, Jews arrived in Australia on the, what is called the first fleet. So the first settlement um, of European of European uh, origins to Australia included Jews. Where did they come that from? That was in 1788. Where did they come from? They came from England. Were and, British? And that's also true of, of New Zealand's uh, Jewish community as well. It came from England. They were British uh, Jews? Sorry? They were British Jews? They were British Jews, yeah. What what year are we uh, talking about here? Ish? So from Australia in 1788 and to, to New Zealand in 1840. Okay. So we're talking, you know, quite a long time. Um, obviously, Australia was settled for, you know, tens of thousands of years by the Indigenous people, right. the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Uh, and actually, it's a good, play, good thing to, to start here with that. Uh, there's a a very beautiful custom, uh, which is sort of permeated throughout Australian, uh, Australia, the Australian society, which is to acknowledge the the indigenous owners of the land in which I'm sitting on, and the Vidigal and Gadigal people, and we pay ex- our respects to their uh, elders past, present and emerging. And I always like to start with that because I think firstly, there's a deep appreciation of indigenous land ownership. And I think as Jews, we understand what that means by virtue of our own connection to a land. Um, But also the Jewish story is about transmission from one generation to the next. Um, And the indigenous story is also, uh, it's about passing from one generation to the next, the skills, the importance of land, the importance of culture. And, you know, the Jewish community uh, here in Australia was very much supported by the indigenous community. And we'll get to that in a minute, um, how that sort of fits in. And, and in turn, the Jewish community was very involved in securing rights and, and more privileges, uh, not privileges, like equal rights, you know, necessary things for indigenous Australians as well. Yeah. So Jews came here, um, they established their community here in Sydney. Um, they became they built the Great Synagogue, which is sort of this cathedral synagogue in the middle of the city. It's stunning. And yeah. it was a relatively small community um, across the country, same in New Zealand. Um, in Australia today, there are about 110, 113,000 Jews. In New Zealand, only 5,000. And really, we see a small community sort of engage in, in broader, the broader Australian landscape until uh right before and after the Shoah. Um, so Australia has the largest proportion of uh, survivors or their descendants outside of Israel. Interesting. Um, so more than America, more than anywhere else, this is, this is the place. Um, we have two main centers of Jewish community here in Sydney. We've got a very Hungarian uh, community in background, uh, although now it's been, you know, f- there's a lot of uh, m- migration from South Africa, and that's been, you know, a huge boon to the Jewish community in some ways. And in Melbourne, it was more of a Polish background. Again, also a lot of immigration from from uh, South Africa over the last twenty years. What we see is a really an interesting dynamic uh, community happening, which is we have. It was. Let's talk about Melbourne in a minute. They're much more traditional, much more religious. But Sydney is is quite a secular. 
um, cultured, very, very assimilated, not, not in the negative sense, but really they've, they've engaged in, in community in, in, in a huge amount of ways um, in sort of the broader civil community. And, but, it, sorry, but the, at the same time, with all, even though they are relatively secular, relatively um, assimilated, they are, this community is deeply Zionistic. Uh, 90%, I think over 90% of people identify themselves as Zionists. 90 something percent have been to Israel multiple times. So we're seeing a, a community that is deeply connected to, uh, to Israel, uh, a community that is relatively conservative uh, in terms of its views towards Israel and even its views towards Judaism. And we can talk about that a little bit more. Um, and we see a community that is rich in infrastructure uh, not yeah. not just buildings and things like that, but communal organizations uh, are, they're really, really incredible here. We see just so many different opportunities for Jews here. And we also have this incredible fundraising mechanism here in Sydney that allows organizations to get on with their jobs of engaging community um, rather than having to fundraise every five yeah. minutes, which uh is very, very valuable. Let me, let me jump in here quick. You know, uh, I, like I said, I had the pleasure of visiting the community and spending a good solid uh, couple weeks in it. And, and one of the things I do is I ask a lot of questions whenever I visit somewhere. Um, and I found, this was my impression, tell, tell me, um, it, at least the Sydney community, I didn't have a chance to go to Melbourne. It, it was, few of the people I met were, were observantly religious, but the overall level of uh, Jewish Ooh. literacy, we'll call it, um, awareness of text, awareness of the holidays, familiarity with Israel um, and, and Israeli political issues, familiarity with Jewish history was much more than you find anywhere in the American Jewish community outside of the Orthodox world. And, and I was giving a few talks, for example, you know, I was talking about religion and state. I was giving talks on political situation in Israel. And and, and I forget who it is who kind of prepared me for the, for the, they said, just so you know, and, and no offense to our American listeners, of which we have many, um, the average Australian Jew is far more caught up and, and you know, uh, aware of what's going on in the Jewish world and Jewish history than is your average, for example, American Jewish. Why, why, uh, why is that, Alon? Look, I, I'm going to add a caveat into that, which is when Dan came to Australia, um, he, he came to, for Limud, which is obviously this intensive Jewish conference, and it attracts a very specific audience in terms of its engagement, you know, and their engagement with, with Jewish literacy and, and Israel, et cetera. In saying that, I think by virtue of the fact that, A, we're at the bottom of the world, we're so far away that it means that to stay connected, you have to actually know what you're talking about and learn and go and, you know, read the news and understand about Israel, number one. Two, Australia is not caught up in the same identity politics and domestic issues that America is caught up in. We're not caught up in the same denominational problems uh, and in fighting across, you know, across Jewish denominations, not dealing with the same separation of church and state in terms of not, I'm not talking about in a political realm, but in a communal realm mm. where you have, um, you know, the people who go to synagogue, people who go to temples versus, you know, your cultural Jew. We're still much more, you know, it's much more traditional, I think, even though the synagogue is perhaps less popular than it was, uh, I would say the majority of mem people in the community uh, have memberships, even if they are, you know, lapsed let, members. Let, let me just they, jump, in, jump in for a second. 
you said that there's no denominational issues. Uh, is that to say that there are not de- denominations of Jewish practice in Australia? Is it mainly one or the other, or or is why, why is there no issues? And what denomination are you speaking of when when you say that? Right. So the, look, there are there are denominations. There is uh, what is called progressive, um, which is probably in between reform and conservative in a way. Um, there are in Sydney just to put sort of give the lay of the land, there are two uh, synagogues or two temples uh, in that, in, in, in progressive Judaism. One is a sort of a campus of multiple communities. So let's say there's maybe four or five, and then there, are, there must be, you know, 25, 30, 40 uh, Orthodox synagogues. Now, when we say Orthodox, we also don't mean uh, Orthodox, like how probably most of your viewers view it. Um, I would say that the majority of the community would be what, in America is called conservative. So the show that they go to is Orthodox, but they, if they go to synagogue, it's once or twice a year, they drive to synagogue. Um, the majority of people do not keep kosher, but you're right. They, but in the end, they are um, more, perhaps more Jewishly literate. We have an incredible day school system here. Yeah. Um, and I think it's something like 65% of all kids go to day, to a Jewish day school. So, you know, your level is already much higher than that's your average American that's community. Huge. That, that's actually really interesting yeah. because it, it leads into another interesting question. I'm sure many of our American listeners are wondering, you know, day school is very expensive. That's something that Americans think about often is how are yeah. they going to afford to send their children to a day school when you're talking about tuitions that are upwards of, you know, anything 20 grand 20, a year, 25,000 even yeah. $80,000 a year, depending on the community, which city you live in in America, I can... I show think, you I think most of them ta- are about, about twenty to thirty thousand a year, which is very. There are, uh, there are many that are expensive. much much more. Wow. So, I, I, how does it work in Australia then for the Jewish community? Is the Jewish Same. community just very affluent? It's, it's or? Like, thank God, like there there are um, subsidies available, and the community has done an incredible job again of centralizing fundraising so that subsidies can be available. But you know, day schools are expensive. The reality is that. You know, a family that chooses to commit to a day school system is going to be uh, paying, you know, upwards of twenty something thousand dollars a year uh, per child, and it only gets higher. So I think it, it starts at you know eighteen thousand in kindergarten and goes all the way up to uh, thirty. 32,000 in, oh. in year twelve in the final year of school. How? How? Sorry, just for the ignorant question, the Australian dollar is where compared to the American dollar? I actually, I wouldn't know at the moment because no one's traveling, but I, I actually don't think it's relevant um, because okay. I think that right. you, have you, to think you earn in Australian dollars. Right. I just wanted to make it's, it's similar. It's, it's it like a little, a little weaker than the dollar, but not by significantly yeah. much. Like I think it's nine to one or eight to one or something in that range. Yeah. I like I, as I said, the fact that no one's traveling and <laughs> it means that things are, you know, I, I think that the, the dollar is in, in an interesting place because it's sort of artificial. But there's such a little movement. It crashed um, for us. Um, in the UK, if I understood correctly, I think um, including Jewish schools are public, like uh, or they do get government funding. So the, in Australia, it's not the same kind of religion. In Australia, it's religion, not the same. same model. Um, there's no avenue for for that to occur. In New Zealand, though, um, it's it's very interesting. New Zealand had a Jewish uh, a Jewish school for the last forty years. A that, actually there were two, one in Auckland and one in Wellington. Um, and in Auckland, the school decided that being a private school wasn't working for them. They, it was too expensive. They weren't able to, to manage. Parents were opting out. Um, 
And so the school decided to do what was called integration and they became a quasi state public school. And that uh, allowed uh, the school to be effectively free except for the Jewish studies. Now my mom's the principal of that school and the school is really uh, has flourished under this model. Um, and what's, what we see in England is, is very similar that you know, access to education is, is very important. I will say that you know, I would say that that's one of the major challenges of the Australian Jewish community. Uh, we see two demographic uh, trends occurring, which is the first is that you're, we're now in the, the realm of the grandchildren of baby boomers are having their children and they're not having as many children. Right. So there is a, a view that there's going to be perhaps 10%, 14% less children going into the day school system which is a huge financial sure. change. Um, and more broadly, the idea of philanthropy is changing. So to what? as we see the movement of, of wealth go from one generation to the next, uh, a, a new generation that is you know, perhaps more engaged in, in patroning the arts and, and other non-Jewish causes, uh, we're gonna start seeing a, a change in the way in which you know funding is available for uh, for schools. Sure. At the same time, with the day schools, we also have this really incredible system called the BJE, the Board of Jewish Education. Um, it's perhaps one of the more undervalued organisations in the community, but they go into public schools. Uh, and in Australia, there's an optional scripture that can occur in, in public schools where kids are allowed to have up to one lesson a week um, of of instruction from a faith and there's an opt-in process and there are a there's this army of of teachers and and um you know all retirees and different different people who go into public schools and for some kids that's the first you know first and only piece of jewish education they'll get mm. but for many kids it's really the opening of a door into a much broader journey into Jewish community and, and Jewish cultural and, and uh, educational experiences. So, something that's interesting to me, uh, and, and I'll, I'll pose this question to Dan as well, because maybe, or, or I should say, you, you might want to phrase this differently in, in, in a context that you uh, are more familiar with, because it's a kind of a JPPI type question, a Jewish People Policy Institute question, mm-hmm. or, or something that your, your yeah. uh, field would get into. How do Australian Jews view themselves more, more sort of like in the Israeli context of we see ourselves as an ethnic community that has a set system of, of religious beliefs, like a tribal people? Or is it more like in the United States where they see themselves as, as primarily a religious community living as, you know, American Jews? That's uh, an interesting question. I would say it's probably the latter. Um, I think... I would, if you ask that question to most countries, you know, diasporic communities, that would probably be be the latter in a way, um, unless they're very isolated. In a recent survey of uh, the Jewish community here in Australia called Gen 17, so it's a, every every decade uh, they do this survey. I read, um, I read it. <laughs> of course yeah. you did. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so it notes that... Um, I think it's 88% of Jews place their Jewish identity uh, as being somewhat or very important. And I, I think that's a, that's a key indication of, you know, the, the, where the community is at. Yeah, um, but- what we're also seeing, and it's very interesting, 
um, I'm doing some some work, and I've actually referenced Dan a few times some of his reports. We're seeing a lot of downward um, trends in terms of active engagement in in Jewish ritual and Jewish life. Um, and when we look at the pure pure study of American of American Jewry, uh, only one third of young Jews have placed value or importance on their Jewish identity. So it's, it's a huge difference. But what we saw ten years before that is that number was a lot higher, but the markers of activity were low. So I actually am very concerned, and it's one of the things that I'm doing in Shalom, a great way to circle back to what we're yeah. doing, is really to to start getting people to actively engage in, in Jewishness and, and acting Jewish and being Jewish in different ways so that those, those activity markers stay high and that value of identity stays high as well. Yeah, let me, I mean, when I, when I was there, I had... Fascinating discussion with our mutual friend uh, Rabbi Avi Bart, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he, I think he had just come back from the United States, and, and I'm in the. I mentioned this a few times, maybe throughout the the past few months. I'm in the process of trying to publish uh, a major study book that I'm writing on American Jewry and kind of trends and where it's going. Um, and one of the things I noticed is <clears throat> the generation. So if we're talking about boomers in the American case, right? And the majority of American Jews... Okay, boomer. Okay, boomer. Uh, the majority of American Jews uh, immigrated from from Central and Eastern Europe in the early 1900s. Okay, that's the majority of the American Jewish community. Um, yeah, exactly. And what you see, and, and you can see this, by the way, it's really interesting. Um, I've had talks with sociologist friends of mine across America in general, and I think this is relevant also for, for Australia being being also a Western immigrant-based country, in that the third generation, okay, so the third generation of the immigrant is the one that assimilates, it's the one where the identity changes. And what happened in the American Jewish community, and, and, and Avi was saying that he's seeing this just a generation later in the Australian Jewish community, and this was really interesting, and I'd love to get your take on this, is that, so what we see now is is the, it's always the third generation in the American Jewish community that, is no longer, just to simplify for the sake of our listeners, no longer Jewish-American, but American-Jewish, right? Where it switches from an ethnicity like you were talking about to a faith, which is an assimilation strategy that many um, ethnic groups use. Uh, again, not assimilation in a bad way, just assimilation of becoming a part of, of your general society. But something also happened, <clears throat> and that's and I think this is what you were referring to, Alon, is that the... Um, the things that were implicit in your identity, in your community, in your culture, in your practice, right? We have Passover Seder. That's just what we do. We have Rosh Hashanah. We go to Shul once a year, and you're just kind of passive in it because it's around you. You grew up in it. It's part of the family practice. At one point, it doesn't hold water anymore, okay? It doesn't carry over anymore when your community is so successfully assimilated, integrated into society at large. And so then, you know, communities like Shalom, and the things that many Jewish organizations are doing in the United States and federations and synagogues and, and outreach organizations are trying to, to, to figure out is how do you get people to to make the implicit explicit or intentional, as, as they call it. You have to have like intentional Jewish identity. You have to have, um, so... so right, you have to buy into the idea of, of committing to it. It has to it be... Has, and it has to have meaning. So you're not right. just doing it because, okay, my grandpa did this, I'm doing this, it's just what we do. 
No, you have to own it. You have to give it meaning and whatever meaning it is for you. If you're a cultural Jew, if you're, if you're religious, if you're progressive religious, whatever. And, and he said to me that this is kind of like, I'm noticing it, you know, I'm writing about it probably into the second decade that it started happening in the American Jewish community. And he's starting to see it in the Australian Jewish community. From what you said, that's what it kind of sounds like is happening. Yeah. I look, I heard a, a really great line from uh, Dr. David Breifman, who is the yeah. CEO of the Jewish Education Project in, in uh, New York. Uh, he's an ex-Melbourneian, -Mel oh, okay. um, so an Australian. And he said, we're moving from surviving to thriving. Yeah. Surviving where it was, you could guilt someone to, right. to stay Jewish, to come to Seder, to a generation that is opting in. Uh, and if our institutions and our organizations don't move to a space of relevancy, yeah. why would someone opt in? Because there are a hell of a lot of meaningful opportunities out there in the world for people to give exactly. their time. And everything we do is competing with time. No, it's not about money. It's not about anything else. Right. Because if, if someone's going to spend $20 to go to the movies, they'll spend $20 to go to a good event, but it has to be worthwhile. It has to be meaningful. Yeah. And that's exactly what we're doing at Shalom. Firstly, our organization has moved from being passive so a passive events-based organization where basically the thought was if you get people to come and put bums on seats, they will stay Jewish. Um, it's clear from the research that that is not the case. Yeah, it doesn't work you anymore. You have to get them engagement. actively involved. And we involved. saw from our demographics, the, the, the age demographics of our, of our membership or of our sort of participate, part, participants was your baby boomers. And it meant that all of the money that was being invested in Jewish continuity and Jewish engagement was to people that a were in sort of in that surviving mode, but B they, they weren't the people that were going to pass the torch to the next generation because they were the past generation. And they were in survival um, mode, like you said. So when you're in survival yeah. mode, it's all about, right. It's, it's Holocaust. It's Israel's in trouble. There's anti-Semitism. We need to, you know, survive. We need to, 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 to maintain community for the sake of that. And we're not there anymore. In many communities, right? What's um, up? And it's dangerous to think that we are. What is, uh, obviously, anti-Semitism is something that people people uh, think about all around the world. What is what is anti-Semitism like for the Australian Jewish community? Look, it's, it's growing. Um, the reality is that you know, across the world it's growing, but it's, it's growing in Australia, uh, unfortunately. It's predominantly online. Um, although we are seeing more, you know, overt statements or um, incidents occurring, the is it is it, it, it? Sorry if I if I if I interrupt here. Is it is it? Uh, could you define it more as classic Jew hatred? Is it anti-Semitism in the form of, uh, you know, adjacent anti-Semitism? Let me help you. Let me help is you frame it, this again. The the JPPI stuff. When we frame anti-Semitism, we we generally talk about three frameworks. So one is is kind of we'll call it classic, like you said, classic kind of right wing, uh, anti Jewish, anti Semitism. Then there's the kind of newer anti Israel, anti Zionism that leads into oftentimes anti Semitism, and then we always talk about Muslim anti Semitism, which is a third and distinct category of the previous two. So which flavor do you have? First two. Uh, it's the first two of those of those. Um, pillars the 
Look, there's an organisation called the ECAJ, which is the Executive Council of Australian Jury. They put out a report every year um, outlining all of the cases that occurred in Australia, and there are thousands. I would say, though, that the majority of young Jews are not worried about anti-Semitism. They're worried about... Do they they meet it? Do do people meet it on a regular... on, On an average day, do you know anyone who's ever been harassed in the street for being Jewish? So, uh, look, I, I have been harassed um, both here in Australia and in New Zealand. Um, in New Zealand, especially following um, the arrests of Mossad agents back in the oh, early yeah. 2000s, there was a major, uh, a major surge of anti-Semitism in a form of anti-Israel, uh, anti-Zionism. I experienced the brunt of anti-Semitism in my high school, um, in my like walking to shul as a very visible, open, you know, open Jew, one of the few Jews walking around with a kippah in general. Um, in Australia, when I was the rabbi in Canberra, which is the capital city of, of Australia, I was there for four years. I had several incidents occur um, as I was walking to, to shul, people screaming out to me. Um, I, I do know people that have experienced anti-Semitism. But and, and and you see, you know, there's graffiti every so often, and there there are issues. I think the difference is that the the the, the, the Jewish community, the Jewish gen, this generation, which are in this thriving mode, they don't want to dwell on anti-Semitism in the same way. I mean, I think that's the key, like framework shift uh, that's that's occurring in the in the community here. We organized in 2019 um, what we called Sukkah by the Sea. It was based on a, a, the Sukkah project that was occurred in Manhattan uh, back in 2010. And we teamed up with the world's largest outdoor sculpture exhibition uh, called Sculpture by the Sea. Three, four, 500,000 people uh, visited. We had architects develop and build six Sukkot mm. uh, in completely reimagined ways. Thousands of members of our community came to see it. Not one issue of anti-Semitism, not one question of, you know, should this Jewish installation, this you know, communal thing be part of a public institution? So if, um, if, and if, I think that's quite telling. If we're generalizing the Australian population, I'm not talking about the, the Australian Jewish population, but the, the Australian population, the majority of Australians, tell me if this statement would be true. The majority of Australians harbor good, positive feelings about their Jewish community. Are they even honest, aware? I would say that they would not even know that there's a Jewish community. They wouldn't here. care. It's not uh, okay. There are Jews in Australia. There are Japanese people in Australia. There are you know Chinese people. Like who cares? Like correct. Yeah. And look, our community has been deeply involved in in civil society for a long time. The you know the owners of. Uh, some of the biggest corporations here, like Westfield, are you know huge philanthropists, and, and you know, and, and their their story is the story of migration and immigration, you know, and and getting involved and working hard for the benefit of society. We've had governor generals, you know, our sort of head of state, uh, who have been Jewish. We've got members of parliament who are openly Jewish, um, and, and a huge number. I think it, when I was in Canberra, we had seven members out of 120 who were Jewish. Oh, wow. Um, so I, I, I think, that, yeah, predominantly the, the general Australian community, either they don't know 
you know, that there are Jews existing here, or, or they look favor, favorably upon, upon the Jewish community and the impact that our community has had on, on society. That's that's interesting. You know, in America, for example, and we reference America just because it's so central to everybody, and and because the second largest Jewish community is there, as well as most of our listeners. Um, in America, for example, you've had kind of um, tensions in recent years that were exacerbated by Trump. I think I think Trump was a symbol of it as much as he was uh, a, a catalyst of it. Of this kind of, on, on the one hand. You know, in America, a we'll call it the progressive America that 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 uh, you know flies the banner of we're a country of immigrants and we're proud of our immigrant stories and we all, you know, you you see that kind of meme going around. It's like you're either you were either at one point your ancestors were either Native Americans, slaves, or immigrants. So like, right? Um, and and yet you have the reactionary uh, pro-Trump camp over the past few years that. Some of them are anti-immigrant. Some of them, uh, I think, are are mischaracterized as anti-immigrant. But but there is some pushback in that sense. Um, it, what's kind of the narrative in Australia, just in general, around the immigrant story? Because you know you had a similar immigration type story to Australia, and, and actually around the same time. Yeah, the immigrant story is really interesting. Um, I think it formed a large part of the Australian narrative until about thirty, forty years ago. Um, obviously being part of the British Empire, our young men went off to war to fight for Britain uh, and the losses and casualties uh, you know, were, were deep and, and hugely impactful to that next generation. Yeah. So that story of immigration was, it was, was huge. Then over the last 40 years, the, the narrative has moved away from um, the story of immigration, which is usually a European white uh narrative sure. to a story of multiculturalism um, and a melting pot of society being sort of a, a commercial hub uh, in the Asia Pacific region, um, attracting mass migration from from Asian countries. Yeah. And so even though it's a story of, of immigration and migration, we're, we're not we're not talking about it in the same lens. We're not talking about from that European that European sense. I think there's also a, a much greater shift back to realizing that Australia is not just 200 and something years old, that Australia is, you know, Thousands. that deep connection yeah. to, to indigenous community. Um, and there's a sort of a, an awakening happening, happening here at the same time, you know, as important as multiculturalism immigration has been to sort of the narrative of Australia governments, both on the left and the right. And when we're talking center left and center, right. Right. Yeah. You really uh, don't have a lot of, I noticed at least the, the dominant politics in Australia ranges from kind of moderately left to moderately right. There's not really, you know, the extreme left, the extreme right. You don't see, I mean, it's there, but I guess you just don't see it so much. It's right? definitely there, but the voices are pushed down uh, in some ways. The, the governments have, have really um, taken a very, what I would say is a quite a negative stance on refugee asylum seeking um, and there really is a horrendous abuse of power occurring uh, in this country with the mistreatment or the maltreatment of, of people seeking asylum. Um, and that's a policy that, as I said, spanned the, the, the political spectrum. It's spanned now a generation, a, a generation of time. Um, we have 
if someone tries to enter Australia illegally, they are placed in an island. Right, Nauru. Yeah, right. They're placed. No, Nauru. They're basically right? pl- placed in prison camps on an island off the coast of Australia. Right. Correct. That's um, not so much off the coast. It's like very far out in the Pacific Ocean. It's a. It's in Polynesia. It's actually the smallest independent country outside of the Vatican City and uh, Look at in the you. world. Do we have any listeners there? No, we do not. I'd be uh-huh. very, very surprised. You can drive around the whole island in a half hour. If you if you know anyone there, can you just get them to download an episode so we get some listeners? Out there? No, no one there because no one? communication no in and out is almost impossible. <laughs> and I and so it, it's 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 very scary. And again, it comes back to, to what we're doing as a community. The the huge amount of activity that's occurring from the community in terms of. Um, better treatment of refugees is, you know, there's just a gr- there's a lot of ac- activity happening, and I, it, it's a, it's a little scary that that's sort of the the stain on our story of migration and multiculturalism, and I, and I, I'm not re- very well versed in, in everything by virtue of the fact that I've only been in Australia for seven years, um, and that I'm not Australian, I don't know the background, but yeah, it, it's worrying about what's uh, what's occurring, and and I think you know the Jewish community has a real opportunity to stand up. I, I and, want and take I want to uh, give a shout out to a couple of people who have joined us on the live stream. So our mutual friend Miriam Zalkind is listening. Hey, and uh, um, if, uh, anyone who's heard my Australia stories, I had the greatest time in the world going on a scuba diving and rainforest adventure with an Orthodox rabbi and a radical feminist. And that sounds like, you know, like it should be some kind of... Uh, I've heard this story movie. so many times, by the way. It was hilarious. We had the best time. And uh, oh, Miriam is listening to us. Our good friend Jessica Cohen is also listening to us. And our COVID scientist, Nathan Davidovich, is listening to us. So shout out to them who just joined into the live stream. Um, wh- what about New Zealand? From my limited understanding, while the while the interaction between the early European settlers and Australian Aborigines was a very, very tough one, to say the least. Um, you know, you could characterize it maybe maybe even worse than what European settlers did to Native American Indians in the United States. Um, the New Zealand yeah. story was a lot different. Uh, if I understood correctly, it was a little more, uh, maybe a little more harmonious, or what was the story with the New Zealand's Maori natives? It's like Look, the difference aggravated assault uh, and... Uh... No, well, well, let's hear. <laughs> in 1840, the the European settlement from Britain uh, signed a treaty with the Maori community, a collection of tribes and chiefs that came to Waitangi, which is in the north of the North Island. Um, they, they, they signed a treaty. The reality is that that treaty was relatively misleading. Um, the translation was uh, was different than what the English version was. Shocking. Sort of... Yeah, exactly. This, you know, it uh, saw the the loss of rights uh, to Indigenous people. I, I would say that the difference between the Australian story and the New Zealand story, let's go back one step, step first. The Maori community was the only community that pushed back against the British in all of their colonizations. Uh, they fought wars against the British. Uh, they won wars against the British. Uh, and the the it's a very understudied, but the history of the Maori Wars uh, is a very very interesting uh, under, understanding of a very proud people uh, who who really fought for for their place and space within New Zealand society. 
The can, can, I, can I just add something to that? As a fan of rugby, if anyone's ever watched the New Zealand All Blacks or just any of the teams from the South Pacific region perform the haka, which is like a tribal pre-war dance ceremony before rugby games, it is it is terrifying. I've personally played rugby matches against um, on the national level back in the states against people from. New Zealand and from the South Pacific, and they are a, um, I say this in, in the best kind of way, a physically dominant people. It's like running into, I'm not a small guy, and it's like running into a brick wall. Um, and, and so I, I can understand if there's one indigenous people that managed to fight back against the British, it, it would be the Maori. <laughs> yeah. I think the story shifts, though, um, to what occurred several decades ago already, which was a real acknowledgement and reckoning of what had been what had done been done wrong towards the Maori community. So we start seeing um, tribunals set up to give reparations uh, against the treaty, against land taken and things like that. We also start seeing Maori culture become infused in European culture. New Zealand is always referred to as New Zealand Aotearoa or Aotearoa New Zealand, which is the land of the long white cloud. Uh, Māori, the the native language, is used on a daily basis. The idea really? of Māori welcoming ceremonies is 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 completely normative. Um, it isn't a, something a spectacle that occurs in a in a museum or you know the Smithsonian. It's something that occurs on a daily basis as kids walk to school on the first day of the year. Uh, like there's just it, the culture permeates through uh, through Pakeha or, or or white European uh, community, and that reckoning, I think, is 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 a major a major difference, uh, firstly between Australia and New Zealand, but also between New Zealand and the rest of the world's treatment of their Indigenous people. It By no means are we at the point where there is equity and equality. Um, you know, the level of uh, the mortality rate is lower, the level of health care availability or accessibility is lower. Um, so we still a lot of issues, but, but definitely... Um, definitely well up there but i also think and perhaps to turn it back to the jewish community the connection between both the new zealand jewish community and the australian jewish community and their indigenous people is, is huge so william cooper um, was an indigenous elder here in australia was the only only person in the world to register its disapproval of the german government after kristallnacht he marched to the German embassy in Melbourne and delivered a letter of protest from the indigenous community against the treatment of the Jews after Kristallnacht. That didn't happen in England. It didn't happen in, in America. It didn't happen in New Zealand. Wow. It happened because of an indigenous person here. In New Zealand, the connection between the Maori community and the, and the Jewish community is, is deep. Uh, they are a very loving people of, of, of the Jewish community. Um, we have very similar connections in terms of uh, death rites and and you know mourning practices and the celebration of our culture. They're very pro-Israel. Uh, Interesting. And, and 
I, yeah, there's, there's just this closeness between our, our communities. And I think part of it comes back to that conversation around land, but part of it comes to it, the conversation around transmission of story and, and faith and action. And I think there's this synthesis between the two um, in both countries that allows for that connection to be stronger. You know, I'd ask your American listeners, how many of how many American uh, listeners have met in, you know, Native Americans, uh, Indian Americans? How, how many people have gone out and, and spoken to those communities or been engaged with those communities? Because in Australia, the Jewish community is deeply connected to the indigenous community. So to jump back into Shalom, one of the key things that occurred after Jews stopped going to the to living at the college, uh, we started doing social and cultural programming for the Jewish community, but we also opened up a scholarship for indigenous students to come and live at, as residents um, for free, effectively, or for a seriously reduced cost uh, with tutoring and other things available. And through that program, we have graduated uh, 43 Indigenous students, the majority of whom are doctors, uh, the m largest proportion of Indigenous doctors uh, in Australia has come out of Shalom College. Oh, that's cool. Um, and, and multiple other initiatives that have occurred to develop a connection and the, you know, the quality of life of Indigenous Australians has come out of the Jewish community. It's a, it's so, there's a deep care uh, that's, I think, very different than other it, communities. It is interesting that that is an issue or, or, or a topic that is of, of you know, relevance in Australia and New Zealand. And, and I you know, want to go back and kind of answer your rhetorical question where you were saying, you know, ask an American Jew how, how much of an interaction they would have. And I would say that, you know, where I grew up in, you know, and it's very geographic. The answer is geographical. So if you're living in New Mexico or if you're living in, uh, you know, some places in Arizona or, Oklahoma, or certain places, yeah. Oklahoma or where I grew up in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, you do have interactions with uh, Native American communities because those communities exist in those places. But the, the, the stark reality just simply is, is that in the United States, in most places, there isn't a community anymore because they were either forcibly moved somewhere else or they were wiped out. Or, or they died from diseases. Right, wiped right, out yeah. for whatever reason. And and uh, and I think that, that that's different in Australia uh, to some extent and definitely different in New Zealand because these are people who, um, who, who, who are still present in the landscape and in the cultural landscape. I would say that that's true from a New Zealand perspective. New Zealand specifically. It's not so as true from an Australian, from an Australian perspective. Um, you like obviously you see indigenous people um but but not in, not the way in which i thought like growing up in new zealand i saw maori people or polynesian people um i think the difference is that the australian jewish community actively sought out engagement mm. with it and so the geographic piece is, is interesting in america but i don't think it's a good enough i'm not sure it's a good enough excuse i agree um, with you. i think this comes back also to this piece around relevancy where you have to take people on a Jewish journey that meets them and intersects them in their secular like desires and passions. And that's something that we're really pushing for and we're really doing. Obviously there are organizations in America that are, that are doing that uh, as well. And I'm always inspired by some of the incredible work that, you know, repair the world and Avodah doing around African-American communities. Um, but I think I'm, I'm, I wonder how, like what's being sought out in terms of, uh, indigenous Americans. Interesting. Um, the same in Canada. Yeah, which is a different story with the first peoples in Canada. H hello, by the way, to Michael Mizrahi, uh, the gentleman 
a mutual friend who introduced us and sort of your predecessor in your current job. Um, that's right. Uh, so Michael uh, just joined the broadcast and, and is listening. Uh, and, and once again, to all those people who have joined since the last time I said this, uh, you're welcome, even though the Facebook uh, is, is about a couple minutes delayed from when we're actually speaking, you are welcome to leave questions or comments uh, in the chat function. And uh, if there's a question, we will try to uh, bring it into the conversation. Now, now, Dan, something that we were talking about before the episode, which was interesting to me, was that um, it, Alone couldn't share. It was both unfortunate and funny at the same time in that you discovered, Alone, that the reason that you couldn't share the notice of our episode online <laughs> before we were doing this and the reason that we may not have a large Australian audience right now is that uh, you were banned from from doing so by faith by Facebook's uh, Facebook Australia Australia. Right? You you couldn't share the what's going on? Yeah, for for those yeah. Uh, I mean I'll, I'll, I'll yeah for those who are listening outside of Australia and who are not Australian and, uh, and and follow this right there there's some drama going on there with Facebook and and the Australian government. <laughs> Look, it's, it's, it's crazy. Not only could I, could I not share the promo for this episode and what we're talking about today. Depri- depriving hundreds of people. see the video. Thousands. <laughs> so I, I, I'm actually, I'm stuck here. I, I'm, I keep looking down at my phone. I can't find the video. The video does not exist for me. That's crazy. Um, so I can't see it on your feed, Dan. I can't see it on the Juan's page. So hopefully after we'll be able to, yeah, I can't it's see there. it. It's there. It exists. We're... It's crazy. Um, well, what's the it, story? It, look, it's really interesting because we woke up on Friday morning. Um, a bill was passed last Thursday that basically said that social media companies and search engines that utilize uh, news content here in Australia, uh, Australian produced media, have to pay for it. Um, and this is a, a major Facebook and and all no, who, these who would media. they have to pay the, the media organizations themselves? Like the, correct, the government's not so trying to attract the tax. Articles from the ABC that have to pay the ABC money for that article. Wait, so so if you alone or, or even me over here, if I want to share an article about you know kangaroo runs wild in an Australian supermarket, um, whatever you know something about Australian politics, it's plausible. It is plausible. <laughs> um, faith, they're saying, the government is saying that Facebook needs to pay Fox News or ABC or whoever it is, whoever the Australian. Yeah, is. I'm not sure exactly the specifics in terms of you know me sharing something as a private individual, how that would play out. Um, Google struck on the 11th hour, they struck a deal with uh, Nine News, one of the, the major broadcasting organizations, for a $30 million per year um access to, to their content what what we what, what what happened when we woke up on friday morning was that facebook had decided unilaterally to remove the ability to access any news content from australian sources uh, and any australian user cannot see any news now the problem is we don't really know what news is so it also shut down all the pages, uh, the health ministry pages yeah. that were giving the COVID updates, right? And oh, no. the the ability to share blogs and private private content uh, creators and and nuanced. My, look, I, I will I will say that the reality is Facebook. my newsfeed is suddenly boring, 
it's not filled with fake news anymore, which is a positive. Dude, my news feed's been boring for like six years, man. <laughs> it's all ads for all kinds of cat videos and it's, it's true. Dance but CrossFit. All posts. I've got now is happy birthdays. So you know, I, I can't see any news articles. I can't see anything. I can't be tagged uh, with a news article. I can't share a news article. I can't. That's crazy. And this becomes actually a problem for for our organization. We do when we bring speakers out. Uh, or now online do a, you know have different presentations we always share their content we say you know dan fethman writer wrote this article have a look at this article before he comes and speaks something like that we can't do that anymore we can't share video we're not even sure if we can f- send out our own videos uh, okay. that we create into the australian market so it's very interesting i have to pause here. It's, it's true by the way it's true miriam cat videos are great <laughs> Cat videos are wonderful. I have a cat. I love cats. I have to say, I have to wait, say, wait, wait. Uh, just relate to that. I've been addicted, addicted lately on Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, to um, clips, like sometimes really brutal clips of like National Geographic animals hunting other animals. Oh yeah, it's fascinating. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll go back to that. But crazy stuff. I, I just want to say this is this is okay. We're year, you know, a year into COVID. We're like, a, you know. 10 years into the social media experiment, 15 years into it. And I think we're coming to, we're coming to a head. We're coming to an impasse here in this world. And you study social media. I am a reluctant user of social media. I find that I'm one of these I'm a professional user of social media. You're a professional user of social media. I (laughs) disdain technology of this type. But the truth of the matter is, is that we've come to a place in time where we're now entertaining a conversation about what is the role of Facebook in the public discourse to a level of which a government has to make a decision of whether or not they will assert themselves as the powerful party or whether or not they will basically uh, capitulate to the needs of a private or a public in this case, but a, a corporation, a it's, corporate it's a, interest. It's a corporate interest. It's a uh, privately owned corporate interest. And it's interesting to anybody who's a passive or, you know, observant or an active user of this platform, which is like, okay, wh- what's right and what's wrong in this case? Because an argument could be made from both sides. I can make the argument, well, look, news content is published by all kinds of uh, platforms, whether it's a media organization, a private person that's blogging but he's trying to make revenue from his blog or whomever it takes money to produce it's carefully crafted and in many cases truth you know to there's a process to uncover and 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 people should be paid for that for that work on the other hand uh facebook is not uh a, a classical publisher it doesn't have an editorial staff quote unquote Although I'm sure there are many people who will say that Facebook's algorithm is that is that publisher. There, there are uh, many who claim that but, Facebook, you know, censors conservative views. And, sure, and, you know, pushes, but but but, but but for the, you know, the the base of this argument, people share what they share on the platform. Okay, right. it's like uh, in many ways a utility. I, I I use it. I can share, you know, a cat video today. I can share something tomorrow. But Alex Jones, like it, it really. I, you know, I, think, I think the question is, and this is what the... So, the but, but, but wait, yeah, because the, the, you need to understand that when, if you, if you have a, uh, a mansplaining to you, Dan, this is basically what I'm doing. You need to understand. Your friend'splaining. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you know, you collect money from whom? The users that shared the news article? Like, like Facebook didn't decide to share 
Nine News's article that Google's now paying for. So when you say like Google's paying for them, that doesn't make sense to me. So what now? Google can only show results in the news if you're searching from Australia from Channel 9? Like you're not going to get any of the other opposing viewpoints if there's another network that has an oppo- Like it doesn't... You're, well, you're creating that, that, a strange set of make, effects. The reality is that these companies make a huge amount of money based on content that is shared. Content, you know, content drives activity and engagement. And they're making, so they're, make, they're making money on the backs of other people's free content. Right. Um, Facebook does more than just, it's more than just you sharing news, right? Facebook itself has a whole news section and, and posts various things against, perhaps against the will of, of, of media companies. Now, you, I think you're right. There is, it's like you, there's arguments on both sides. Um, what I'm most concerned about is what what fills the vacuum because nature hates a vacuum abhors abhors it's a a real issue yeah are we going to start seeing the you know we're seeing it around the whole world but are we going to start seeing the rise of uh, of fake conspiracy theories you know fake news already are oh yes you are (laughs) we're already seeing it i promise you and and suddenly a, a a a generation that is using facebook as their you know, their aggregator for content uh, is going to be devoid of any nuanced opinion uh, or well-researched media. Now, I think I, I think that's uh, I, some people would say that our media is not well-informed or you know factually correct. I would say that that's you know, why we're here. Hell of a lot more than other places. <laughs> no, it's like th- there, there's a question here, and, and you know, I've read both sides of this, um, and and the one. The one hand is like some of the, the traditional media companies um, are having a hard time funding themselves. And I think this is true across the world. They're having a hard time figuring out how to monetize. So some sell ad space and some um, sell subscriptions and paywalls. Um, but, but at the end of the day, a lot of these are losing money. And the people who are owning the big media companies, you know, Jeff Bezos bought Washington Post. I don't think, I think he's, it's Bezos. Oh, whatever it is. He's rich. And he's not making money from Washington Post. If anything, he's losing money. And all these big kind of media places are losing money. And so is it a question of Facebook and Google are kind of freeloading on the media companies and using their content? Or as the media companies claim, um, is Facebook getting free content to share on their platform? I, th- I think that, I think that the, the classic traditional media companies are in some sort of a you know, uh, and it's driving. By the way, it's driving readership yeah, I, to I, to these I, uh, to I, these companies. I, I think that people that are in our generation and younger people are definitely drawn towards more um, new media sources. They're, they're drawn to things that are uh, more, well, well, more user based. Everything's and curated I, and th- now. Right. And I, curated. But I think that what we're seeing in in this particular legislation in Australia, and I'm sure we'll see it. Um, it's happening everywhere. It's happening. Right. We'll, the same we'll discussion see it, is happening. We'll everywhere. see it. We'll see it come out into fruition in different places, in different forms, formats. In this decade, particularly, is is because, in many ways, uh, one can make the argument that traditional media sources are in some sort of a uh, a panic. Uh, we'll call it like the death throes of their business model. Yes, um, absolutely. They don't know what to do with it. They have to remain. You know, they're fighting for a way to try to remain relevant in the public square. They're trying to assert their credibility in many ways and and the truth of the matter is is that it's a model that does not necessarily formulate itself well to a user interface user based 
new media landscape where there are no gatekeepers. Right, it hasn't transitioned well. It it, it hasn't transitioned well, and you know what? That it's okay. It, it's but oh, for well, them, they're okay, going it's to not, it happened, right? So right, now, it happened. They're they're going to do what they want to do. So it's no surprise that in 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 you know our Western democracies, and Australia, of course, is is a Western democracy. You're going to see that there are power uh, apparatuses that are tied into the media that are going to try to assert themselves and say, no, this is not, you know, appropriate to do. But I think that over time, like everything, you know, we, we, we will evolve and this will be such a thing that we'll look back and go, like, I think that the the, the other piece of the conversation, and, you know, it's it's interesting because it feeds into my own, you know, my doctoral research, which is, Social media and collaborative digital spaces have the ability to impact and and really change the course of any given issue. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw in the Hong Kong uh, protests the mass use of social media to galvanize and change, you know, the, the sort of the tone and rhetoric and discourse that was occurring in in Hong Kong and 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 move people. We saw, you know, the election of Trump uh, was a major was in part hugely uh, occurred because of, of social media. We see, you know, a, we saw a president effectively governed via Twitter um, for four years. And I think this this conversation is not just a, around a, the, the sort of the controls of, of me, you know, the control of media organizations on, on, on the discourse, but actually a conversation about how how can we, should we, you know, what, you know, what are the regulatory controls that we need to put on social media spaces? Because effectively you've, you've created a globalized digital community that is now can, in, in some ways should be regulated to ensure that it fits, you know, the norms of society, the right. society and, that and, we live in. And if left unregulated, they're going to step up and behave as if they're a quasi-state actor, which is what well, you're well, saying. Well, they already are. Do. Right. They already are. Let, let me ask you this, uh, Alon. Let me ask you, you know, in this debate, and this is something that I do read a lot and think about a lot, and we've talked about it a few more than a few times on the show in different contexts. Should we be viewing the social media, which, which again, they're private companies that people choose to use. When, when Trump was kicked off Twitter, Okay, and this is a good way to talk about this, perhaps. When Trump was kicked off Twitter or when Google um, App Store and and the Apple, whatever, download uh, App Store uh, uh, decided to throw off Parler, which was supposed to be the kind of... back on, though. Is it? Okay, so when they threw off Parler, which was supposed to be, for those who are not aware, kind of the conservative Twitter, um, you know... Some people were, were, were really upset, censorship, et cetera. And this was, you know what? It's a private company that a lot of people choose to use. And, and you know, kind of just how, like, MySpace was the thing, you know, back uh, <laughs> when I was a little younger, I never had a MySpace account. I did. It was awesome. Of course you did. But MySpace literally disappeared and, and was overtaken completely by Facebook. Are, are these private companies that we can just give them our business or not? Or maybe should we be looking at them at this point like we do the telephone company, like we do the roads, right? So imagine like if you had a private company that was building all the roads that everyone needs to drive on because that's just where our society is. How should we be viewing the role? And then when we get to regulation, like you were saying, Benny, how should we be viewing 
you know, the role of these these social media giants in our society and, and how should we be regulating or not regulating them? Look, I think I think that answer, and you know, I'm not an expert on this, so you know, we're having a no, bit just, of a test. Just your thoughts, you know. That, that it's really, it really is just my thoughts. I think we have to understand the differences between societies in order to, to get to sort of that point. And, you know, COVID is a great example of, of, of amplifying differences within society. I look at a, a country like Australia and a country like New Zealand, even in England, we see a community, we see, a, 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 you know, a citizenry that cares more about the collective than cares about the individual. You look in America, uh, America is, it's the land of individualism. Yes. Uh, it's the land of rights. No one, you know, a few fringe people, no one spoke about rights and the restriction of movements and what that means for uh, for a, lo- a loss of rights. There's now talk around, you know, inability to move between states as perhaps a, a rights issue, but no one, no, that wasn't, a, we cared more about the safety and security of our, of our neighbor than we did about um, yeah. the the rights of the individual. I think that's America a discourse loves, you only hear in America, right? Only. You hear a little bit in, in, in Europe, but I think that comes from a very different space and it's a, a fear of a mistrust of government, which is understandable, you know, considering uh, the Soviet control of, of Europe for so long. But so in, in Australia, the idea of regulating companies is normal. It's not, it's not a, there's not really a question. Um, in, in America, I think that's a, it's, the idea of the free market is, is far greater uh, and far more expansive than, than here. But the reality is, you know, responsible regulation is important in creating responsible community. Um, and we, you know, in, it, through restraint in some ways, through constraint and restraint, you see a, a greater level of creativity and innovation. Um, and I, I think it's a, it's 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 a scary thought to think that a a non-state actor with so much power does not have any regulation attached to it. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Uh, you you mentioned your your PhD work uh, that you're going to be looking at the influence of social media on halacha, right? If I understood correctly, uh, right. Jew, Jewish law for those who are not familiar with the term. Um, I, I'm actually pitching now my next project and what I'm going to lean to has to be authorized first, but I'm pitching my next project to JPPI. And I want to look at um, something that you and I discussed a little bit before kind of a few months into the COVID issue. And that's the influence of we'll call it digital online Judaism, Jewish communities, Jewish practice. um, And, and how that's, it was something that existed before COVID, but it's really taken off because, because we haven't had an alternative um, and so that's kind of a direction I'm going to go in, but you're looking at it both as a practitioner, you know, you had, uh, you, you kind of had two different kinds of Jewish communities, one that deals with culture and engagement, the other is an actual synagogue, you're an Orthodox rabbi, and you're in your PhD work, you're looking at it, social media and halacha. Can we talk about that a little bit? Can we talk about kind of where your thoughts are? No, of course. Look, my, my topic deals with halacha and the halachic process, um, and Obviously, in a PhD, you have to get very, very narrow. Um, but the the whole point of a PhD is the broader implications. So, I'm really interested in how collaborative digital spaces change the way in which we operate. Um, 
what specifically what I'm looking at is these Facebook groups that popped up, which are effectively discussion groups where you've got, um, you know, 5,000, 10,000, 22,000 uh, groups like God Save Us From Your Opinion or Ask the Bit Midrash or Orthodox Feminist. There's a group um, called God Save Us From Your Opinion. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. awesome. It was created by a colleague of mine. I was a moderator for several years. Um, it's a, at, when I did a keynote address at Limud Canberra uh, in 2015 or 2016, I think 2015, uh, I downloaded one day's worth of conversations and the comments, and it was 400 pages of text. Wow. Okay. So Whoa. we're seeing people really engage with each other, the democratization of text and accessibility of text and, and interpretation of text. And of opinion. And all of these groups, the one thing that they have in common, all of the ones around Jewish text and, and conversation around that, they all have the same thing, which is you're not allowed to ask for psak halacha. You're not allowed to ask a question, how do I do X? You know, can I, is this thing kosher? Or, you know, to get a, a direct response. Because they, there was a view that, you know, this is not a place, this is not a, a this is not the bit midrash. This isn't a rabbi. This isn't a whatever it is. Just, so just so, hang, on a, hang on a little, just so people are aware, um, for, for those of our listeners who, who might not be aware of how this works, in traditional Jewish practice, okay, traditional Jewish practice, as opposed to liberal Jewish practice, the role of the rabbi is to interpret Jewish law, correct me here, explain, you know, follow up on this, to, to decide on matters and interpret Jewish law to everyday life. Am I allowed to do this? Am I not allowed to do this? How should I act in this situation? How should I act in that situation, right? And in and, and orthodoxy, and for, you know, for the majority of the world, you know, for the majority of Jewish history, that was relatively decentralized, right? It was the individual communal rabbi that, that gave those answers. Uh, in Reform Judaism, we, we see the, and, and conservative as well, we see the uh, Central Committee, Central... Uh, um, CCAR, Central the Conference of American Rabbis. Yeah, which is, and, and they have their own halakhic <laughs> committees and the Reform Movement Dan, has its own halakhic Dan, Dan's... Uh, Studying for a PhD in Jewish acronyms. <laughs> you know what? The Australian Jewish acronyms, I think, are even worse than the American ones. <laughs> it's so funny that it's like a, it's a, it's really a thing that's pan the whole Jewish world. I mean, even in, in Israel, we have our, oh, our yeah, acronyms, yeah. Um, and and they're they're great. But, but in Israel, in Israel, the acronyms become words. Right, they become words. Like you don't say them. As, you don't say words. like lamed lamed kaf vav. Like, you say like you say it as if it's its own word. Right, and so it takes on a life of its own. You know. We, we, we used to call it the, the alphabet soup of, yes. of uh, the Jewish organization in the world. So, um, so like in any, in any, as I said before, any moment of constraint or restraint, we start seeing innovation. So too, people uh, did, this, did this with the rules of these groups. So they come to these groups and they ask questions. I would love all of the sources relating to this topic uh, to hit me with what you've got. And suddenly people are sending in you know, all of these sources, giving their own, you know, commentary on them, uh, really expanding the library and of, of, of Jewish text available to, to, to the questioner. But the questioner, and my, this is my hypothesis, is taking those and perhaps deciding for themselves the path that they want to go down. Now, why is this a problem? It's not because I'm a rabbi and it's not because I... I, I You're going to be I out of a job. <laughs> power. And I need to control the masses, right? Well, you the do. The problem is, we've Job seen this. 
What? You, you, you do. That's your job. That's your job. <laughs> but I don't crave it. I might have it, but I don't crave it. Um, what little... we're seeing, though, is if you don't have a relationship with a person who can actually explore the nuance of your question, or the then you, of question. you end up getting the wrong source. You end up with the wrong answer. And it, it's fascinating. When we look at um, doctors, for example, in Belgium, there was a study done where, um, where, where patients reported that they have a 65% disapproval rate with their doctors because <laughs> their doctors differed from, doctor, from Dr. Google. Right? <laughs> and they would Stupid. go in, 90% of patients were Googling before they went into the doctor's office and they were saying to the doctor, it's wrong. And you see the move from, you know, your, your GP no. and your rela- long-standing relationship with the GP to walk in clinics where you basically, you go in, you tell the doctor, I've got these things. I, I know what antibiotics I need. I do the same thing. I'm like, I've got a sinus infection. I know the feeling. I need this antibiotics. And they go, here's a script. And I walk right. out five minutes later. Or, or now it's I, like, I have a sore throat. I have COVID-19. You go to the doctor. He's like, you don't have COVID, but you didn't give me a test. How do you not know? How do you know? I got to say, I, I kind of do the same thing. I'll be perfectly honest with you. And I rarely and, and go to the doctor. And the that, that, that breakdown of relationship yeah. means that we, we can't see if something is physiological, psychological. Uh, is there something else going on? And there's those amazing stories of uh, whether they're apocryphal or not of these great European rabbis and, and those that came to America, you know, Rav Moshe Feinstein is perhaps the, the greatest example you know, of, of a woman, an old woman, very poor, very ragged, comes in with a chicken, and the rabbi says, this chicken is kosher. And the woman comes, a, a woman in, in a fancy gown comes in and with the same problem of, on her chicken, and the rabbi says, it's not kosher. Because the she can afford another rabbi. one, yeah. Right? What? Be, because she, the poor woman can't afford another chicken. Correct. And so it, for her, the, it wasn't a big enough problem to to rule it non-kosher but mm. for the person who could afford that's a situation that you know, would would mean that it's it's prohibited that, the, that's that's really interesting that's really interesting that you point out and it's something look i mean i mean uh, sorry to jump in here it, it's should be until the modern era jews lived in communities that was just the Jew, you know, Jews were not accepted by and large into the larger community anywhere they lived until the modern era. And so you, your only way of existence as a Jew, unless you wanted to convert out of Judaism to Christianity or Islam, was to be a part of the Jewish community. And there was a hierarchy and there was just norms. And maybe you did or didn't do things in the privacy of your home, but in the public sphere and towards the outside, you had to live in, in a certain way. And the the it, the communal leadership and or the rabbi made these decisions over over everything. With the advent of liberal Judaism, you know the reform movement eschewed halacha entirely. Um, it didn't have a place. It doesn't have a place in reform Judaism today. Or as they like to say, it has a vote but not a veto. Um, that's how a lot of reform rabbis like to explain it to me. Um, yeah, I would say that it, it has a place, but it's a, a guide. It's and, a guide. And it's, informing, it's an informing hand rather than right. a dogmatic. Right. And conservatives are kind of somewhere in the middle. They do technically have halacha, 
but a lot of them don't abide by it, but they still have it there. So again, the, you know, vote not a veto type, type uh, uh, approach. Um, and so, so the, the concept of the rabbi as a leader who has to decide these things and the, that example you brought of the rabbi who can look at the poor woman and say, it's kosher because he knows she doesn't have the means to go get another chicken versus the rich woman who, who he's going to be more stringent on the law because she does have the means to go get another chicken, I think is a beautiful example of kind of the humanity of, of the, the role of the rabbi as a leader, as both someone, yes, someone needs to interpret Jewish law, but they need to do it in connection with the person and with the realities of that community. And it's a beautiful example. And if I'm understanding you correctly and where you're going with this, I'd love to hear about this more. Um, are you saying now that Orthodox observant people who do abide by Jewish law are now starting to get out of this rabbi-led, rabbi-informed model of life? Is that what you're saying? Look, I would say that the majority of modern Orthodox Jews are not asking, are not asking the same at the same level questions of Jewish law to 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 Rabbanim. Now, part of that is because, by and large, they're more knowledgeable. So they're more Jewishly literate. They can actually look things up themselves. We also have translations. So, you know, social media and, and Safari the social media <laughs> I was just gonna say. is is huge. But the printing press mm. and that technological advancement was the biggest change for, for Jewish history yes. and for, for, for Jewish engagement with law. Um, but the reality is people aren't asking, we don't, we don't ask questions. We don't ask, like, you know, there always, people always say like the joke of, of men is that they hate asking for directions. <laughs> we actually, I think we've become a society, especially in the Western world, that we actually don't want to go out of our comfort zone and ask, and ask things. How many people go to doctors when they got a niggle? Like we just, we sort of um, push it all down. And my hypothesis is that really people aren't asking the same amount of questions. The rabbis themselves aren't on social media in the same way. Um, they're not engaging in the collaborative digital spaces that people are using. They're not engaging in a way that is relevant. Um, and we have, yeah, we, I, I, I believe that it's going to cause a, a fundamental change and shift within people's engagement with law. That, that's really interesting. Are you noticing, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of familiar with ultra-Orthodox or Haredi society, um, you know, because I, I live in the modern Orthodox space in Israel here, um, right. even though I'm kind of on the edges of it, but I'm still kind of part of that world. My kids go to that school system. That's yeah, your neighborhood. It's my neighborhood. It's most of my circle of friends. Um, one of the big differences for those who are outside of the Orthodox world in general that, that I think people do, are not aware of is the difference, I think, in this regard between modern Orthodox and uh, and ultra-Orthodox or Haredi. Or, outside or, of Israel. Just in general, people well, outside I mean, like, of... In, people in Israel would know more. No, no, no. I'm saying even people in Israel who are outside... Well, you, you tell me because you're, you're, you're neither. Um, w one of the things that really differentiates... Um, the modern Orthodox versus the ultra-Orthodox or Haredi experience here is that the Haredi world is still very much dependent on going to your rabbi with a lot more questions about day-to-day. -day. And like Alon was saying, the average modern Orthodox Jew has a decent education, a Jewish education. I don't, but the average one does. And uh, and so they can look things up for themselves. Um, and that mindset of, of, no, I can look things up for myself. I went to yeshiva. I went to school. I know how to do this myself to an extent, of course. Um, whereas in the Haredi world, I think they're still a lot more dependent what's the, on, on the rabbi. What's the question to me, though? Well, is that something you're aware of, the difference between modern Orthodox and Haredi? Yes. 
I think that the majority of engaged, and by engaged I mean you're not a total ignoramus as a human being, Jews in Israel. <laughs> but we know most Israelis know. are ignoramus. <laughs> you know what we had early on, you gave me people that, that there were listeners that criticized that I would generalize, but, but that was a good one on your part. It was a big generalization. No, it was. It was no look. It, it, to get serious for a second, I think that we live in a in a society here in Israel where, based on the virtue of the fact that it's a majority Jewish society, people are living together with various different communities. If they're not living in the neighborhood of that community, they're aware of the existence of that neighborhood. Uh, and and in Israel, probably more than in anything, you know in any other place, communities wear their affiliations literally on their sleeves in, in terms of the, the color of their kippah, the uniform that they wear, sure. the size of their hat, their, their, you know, you know, Haredi people by and large wear black. There's a stigma that is, you know, various levels of true or untrue that they're all kind of sheep following the, you know, the, the, you know, I'm talking about Hasidic people, you know, following the orders or the directives of the Admor. Uh, and I, and I think that, you know, in, 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 you're saying that's how secular Israel views it, correct? Yeah, okay. And 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 that they're you know in terms of modern Orthodox Jews here in Israel, you know, they're in the labor force, so we go to work side by side with them. So we have Serving interaction, the side by side. right? So there's interaction with them as human beings, more based just based on on the nature of reality here in Israel. There's more interaction with a modern Orthodox sure. Jew than there would be with a Haredi Jew, typically. Of course, and therefore, and that's by design. People see them more as well. They're they're like us. They you know they they talked about mm. the, watching the the football match last night, and they talked about how their kid is going to their army uh, swearing in ceremony aside my child, and it's like, oh, they invited me to the bar mitzvah, and I was at their daughter's wedding. Like, there's an interaction, sure. there's a closeness. So in that, they know that that person at their office who's modern orthodox is not sitting there waiting to get the answer of his rabbi for every move he makes in life whereas i think this the the and we can debate whether you know various levels of it if it being a stereotype or not but that you know i think that the general viewpoint of the black wearing public is that they are a herd following the directives of their leaders way more than any other uh, modern Orthodox. Interesting. Alone, alone in but that's really interesting because I think that when we look, when we think about traditional Orthodoxy until until really like twenty years ago, I think someone that was defined as modern Orthodox or Dati was asking their rabbi for the majority of their questions. Right. Right. And so that perception, it's uh, it, it 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 it's it's problematic because I think it denies the reality of of, of what occurs. Well, l- let me today, let me let me be clear. I wasn't taught when I was talking about asking the rabbi. I wasn't talking about necessarily the context of asking the rabbi about a religious natured question. I was talking literally about should I accept? Should I vote for this guy? Should I? Should I? That was ha- I think that was happening in the modern Orthodox world was, as well. Okay. Yes. Yes. And not now. It you was. Read, no, you know the the the. If you read like the different shelot chuvot, the question response to literature yeah. um, of of early the early modern orthodox communities in israel or even uh listen to the lectures of modern orthodox america uh modern orthodox american rabbis like rav soloveitchik you we see that same that same thing where large different pieces of of what is normative life so non um the non-legal part of life i suppose was 
was also engaged with the rabbi. And I think that's because Judaism was never just a religion, right? right? Like right. That, denominations have made, moved Judaism into this like religion and, and, and it's, you know, you've got your religious time and your, your sacred time and your profane time. Judaism for, for the average Orthodox person is a way of life. Sure, it's an um, all-encompassing it's a, existence. And Judaism, right. you know, if you read Jewish law and if you read, if you read the, the, the Torah, the Bible, you know, it refers to just as much to civil law and, and how you should treat your neighbors as right. it does to what your relationship with, with God should be, even so, more. And it's ethics, it's everything. Right. It's, it's so pervasive. So I, I think that the, the average modern Orthodox or Dati Lomi person was asking those questions. I think what we're seeing is a breakdown in relationships. I, we see this across the board, right? The idea of that you, you don't need to talk to someone face to face. I don't like to talk to someone on the phone. I will much happier, much, much, it's much more enjoyable yeah. for me to SMS or Facebook or Instagram. Me right? too. It's a generational seeing, thing. <laughs> no, but right, me, me too, completely. Yeah. I know, I, I me too. I'm to entertain a conversation and on the phone for more The problem is that, that if our rabbis are not on social media, then they're not part of the question. So I, mean, I want to go back to the doctors because it's so interesting. There are, there are huge Facebook groups of patients going through whatever ailment that they're going through. And there's discussion groups. And what they've started to do is in medical schools is they're saying doctors need, like um, intern doctors, training doctors need to be on these social media sites, helping to direct the, the tone of the conversation, to put out articles, to ensure that that people are engaging not in an echo chamber of, of, of sick people and, and people looking for a cure, but people with informed understanding. Um, and so I think the same thing is true for rabbis. We've got to be we've got to be on on the ground. Can't be. It's not enough to sit in the shul office. You've got to get out there and, and engage with your con- congregants and the masses at their level in their space. Meet meet them where um, they are. I, I think that's um, that's a really interesting thought. I, I have two questions in this regard. Um, so so one, I'd be curious if you're finding Haredim or maybe Haredim and Haredi again, ultra orthodox people are kind of. On the borderlines of the you know the liberal edges of Haredim or what we call in Israel modern Haredim who are on the internet, um, are you finding them involved in these kind of groups as well? Is it start is this trend that you're seeing starting to seep into the ultra orthodox world? And you know just a, just a comment. I remember. So I didn't grow up religious. I grew up in a reform community, and, and while you know we were very much engaged in the Jewish community, I didn't know a whole, whole lot about. Jewish law, you know, I, I didn't know a whole lot about the holidays and all that. Um, American Reformed Judaism in the 80s and 90s when I grew up was was a lot more watered down than it is today. Um, and one of the first things I did at that time was I was uh, Chabad. I went to Chabad's website. At the time, I think they were one of the few groups with a serious online presence. And they had a, I think it was called like, Ask Moshe or something like that, and they had Ask Moshe. and they had a, a team of rabbis answering questions. And if you couldn't find the question you want, they'll answer your question. And it was fascinating, you know, it was fascinating for me. And, and I think Chabad's always been kind of been at the forefront of um, of Jewish engagement and, and, and kind of meeting people where they are. And, and so I, I think, um, you know, I, I'd be curious about that and and maybe to tie that in just with a kind of a second question on this. There's an interesting dynamic with Chabad and the Australian Jewish community that maybe we can touch on just because it's a, maybe it's a side story, but I think it's also interesting to understand the Australian Jewish community and the role of Chabad in it today. So, I, yeah, look, the it, 
we have to differentiate between, I think, Haredi community in Israel versus outside of Israel. Obviously, outside of Israel, the Haredi community is much more technologically engaged. Um, we are seeing we are seeing what is called yeshivish or more black hat uh, Haredim come on to these to these groups. Um, there are groups that are more modern versus you know groups that are more conservative in that religious sense. Um, it's yeah, it, 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 it's interesting. I, and I, I wonder what, you know, once they start doing some qu more qualitative and quantitative uh, surveying and research, what the, the data will start showing in terms of the trends, both of the participants and also the rabbis who are either engaging or not engaging. And it's very true what you said about Chabad. The Chabad presence uh, online is, was, was incredible. Um, it, was it was it was pathbreaking or, or trailblazing or whatever the term is, right? Yeah, like ground, 100%. ground. Um, and if it's in, within the Monica, because from a sociologically uh, a sociological perspective of um, fundamentalism breaks fundamentalism down into three three parts, and one of those things is the world conqueror. That's a type of fundamentalist, and the textbook example of fundamentalist for the last thirty years of, of world conquering fundamentalist is Chabad um, and Chabad goes out it's not that doesn't mean it's a negative you don't have to be it's not a negative uh, you're, saying, you're right it's not a judgmental statement, statement it makes it sound like Hitler invading <laughs> Poland like the conquer the, the blitzkrieg different, different <laughs> fundamentalism um, but Chabad is a world conqueror they go out and find every available space uh, to pioneer and to to effectively conquer um, and to, to you know, with, with, for positive, for positive goals, um, and the internet was one of those frontiers. And modern orthodoxy did not, did not live up to its namesake. Uh, it it did not adequately engage uh, in an online presence until very very recently, and in some ways perhaps missed the boat uh, on that. And it, it, look, COVID has done radical things to the world and and to the world online. And you know, you mentioned what you're looking at, you know, what you've been doing some research and I've, uh, I'm about to present a paper on Sunday on the idea of borderless global Jewish communities. That yes, have, that's part of it. And it's been sparked by online engagement and it's been exasperated and amplified through COVID. Um, and yes, many rabbis, in fact, I, I have to, you've got to give a standing ovation to, to rabbis and, and communal organizations for the response that they made. Uh, many with, almost zero tech, uh, tech knowledge have pivoted hugely. Um, but the reality is that for the modern Orthodox world, there's, there's no reason why it took a pandemic to make that a reality. Sure. If I can, though. Every, every, every teaching under the sun, they teach finance and management and fundraising. Uh, there should have been, and hopefully there will be one day, uh, a course on, you know, professional development course on online engagement in the Jewish world. Right, but if if I must, I mean, it, is it fair to compare the uh, the efforts of Chabad to be everywhere they can be in the social media sphere to the lack of uh, in 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 the case of modern orthodoxy, in that Chabad is an actual movement. It's a, it's an organization. They have a leadership. They have a budget. They have a, a hierarchy. It's it's like it, it's it's. It's like a nonprofit. It's legitimate. It's an organization. It's an organization, it's an organization. Right. Whereas modern Orthodox is an is an ideology. It's, it's a not, movement. There's not, not one, you know, yeah. organization that point. represents that can decide what the policy initiatives are going to be. You're, you're right. It's a fair point. Uh, yeah. Look, they, I think they say that the 
Chabad is the world's most well-funded um, organization after the Vatican. Um, they are centralized. Sure. It is it, 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 it leaps and bounds in the differences, right? I'm, I'm not criticizing modern orthodoxy as an ideology, as, as, a, as a movement. I think what, I'm, what I suppose I'm criticizing is we don't have to, modern orthodoxy didn't have to go and engage in the online world to engage the masses and to involve in, you know, this effectively reach as many people as possible and conquer the world. Um, but even to their own localized communities, they weren't engaging very well online. Um, you know, how many, how many big North American modern orthodox shuls, uh, how many of their rabbis were engaging with millennials who had stopped coming to shul, uh, but were active on, in these online digital collaborative spaces? Right. Um, how many of them knew even how to access those things? You know, you know one of the things that's so interesting, we look at Safaria um, as a, which I think really is the biggest technological advancement since, since the printing press. It's brilliant. Safaria, the huge repository of, of Jewish texts, huge innovations across the board, was founded by non-religious secular North Americans, right? Where was modern orthodoxy in that conversation? Why, weren't they, why wasn't that a project uh, that was occurring? It was by um, Saffron Four. Uh, what's his name? Um, Jonathan. No, not Jonathan, his brother. Oh, Jonathan Seffernfor is, is a famous novelist, for, for those who might have heard his name. His brother, who apparently is just as brilliant and accomplished, apparently the entire family is, so his brother uh, founded Safaria, which is, for, for those who are not aware, it's really cool. You yes. literally have at your fingertips, in Hebrew and English, searchable um, and free, every single major Jewish text and commentary on those Jewish texts. And yeah, the entire and lexicon of knowledge. Maybe. It's it's unbelievable. And I'll tell you, as someone like like I mentioned earlier, as someone who came into kind of the deeper Jewish existence later in life, I didn't have the ability to to study in yeshiva. So I I if I'm sitting with someone like alone or whatever who 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 is well read in this, I can sit with a page of Gemara with a page of Talmud, and and I can read it with help. Partly because of the structure partly because it's in Rashi script, partly because it's in Aramaic, and I just I don't know how to do that by myself. Um, and now with things like Safaria, anyone can do it, and it, it's, yeah. it's, it's unbelievable. It allows people like me, you know, to sit with my son and um, study, look up things in, in Jewish text that I just, I just probably wouldn't be able to do. I want to I wanna try to take a step back here. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm in this position where I'm like, I'm, we used to watch this thing. I think it was on Sesame Street growing up, where it was like, "Which one of these things doesn't belong?" <laughs> yeah. So, so I have a, 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 a modern Orthodox rabbi, a modern Orthodox Jew, and and me, the you know secular Zionist, sitting here in, in this conversation. And sometimes what I like to do is play a little thought experiment game in my head, which is like, "What if the aliens came down and looked at the situation? What would they understand of this?" That were crazy. Know, with with having no context whatsoever, and it's no. What, what I'm thinking about right now is like, how many other religious groups in the world and maybe maybe it's everyone and i'm just completely you know one of those ignoramuses we were talking about before how many religious organizations in the world are as um i don't want to use the word obsessed but determined to try to seek out a engagement or a presence with their followers or to make sure that people are checked in and engaged 
all in every them. possible way, all the time. All of them. The way I, I could speak as to Western religions, I'm less familiar with Eastern religions because Eastern religion is not religion in the Western sense. It's more philosophies, and again, it's not my thing. So I'm going to speak very, you know, casually about that. But I know in Islam, I know in the various churches of Christianity, this is happening. But all like over in the Christianity, world. I can almost understand it, right? Because why? In, the why is actually theological because in Christianity you the, the the there's a core belief that everybody needs to be saved. You have to get people to engage with Jesus Christ because you're afraid you're you okay. maybe fear you you don't want them to suffer. You don't want them to go to hell. That's more of a yeah. That's okay. more of a messianic view. So, but, no, but, but that's but, not a messianic view. That's oh. the core of Christianity. Is you must believe in in Jesus. I understand. Christ. I understand. If you go to more modern kind of like the reform slash conservative version of Christianity today. Okay. And, and I had to touch on this a little bit in, in some of the things I read about. If you go to, to Islam, uh, you'll see the same discussions. You'll see the same kind of thing. How do we reach millennials? How do we engage? How do we engage with the next generation? Um, and, and, and it comes from a place of your engagement with religion, specifically this religion, makes the world a better place, makes community a better place, makes you a better person. So- and and the uh, same, can I just the jump same in? Please, yeah, please, please, please. I, I think that this isn't a question of religion. We're we're looking at it from a perspective of of like of faith or or religion. This is a, a a this is an expression of of humanity, because hum, humanity craves a deep social engagement yeah. with its fellow members and. Yes, we look at it from you know Jewish engagement, but we don't we care. It's not because we care about well, not, not because we solely care about you know how much Jewish knowledge they've got. It's about ha- how accessible, how ingrained are these people going to be in community and in peoplehood. And I think that's that's the key thing. I, look, I, I I think we are probably one of the few religions that have made such developments in terms of our accessibility to text and 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 ex- the expansion of of libraries and and, and accessibility um we we are the people of the book uh in that sense like and and so we find every single way in which to to share those teachings to our practitioners and to our members but i think that at its core it's about belonging it's about community it's about a, a deep need and acknowledgement of that need and judaism I think has acknowledged that need from the very beginning. I, right? I think Adam I think, and Chava, yeah. uh, Adam and Eve, that that the importance for humanity is is belonging. I think one of the things that always has kind of turned me off, and I can't explain why it necessarily turns me off. Well, I, I, no, that's that's a lie. I think I can, but I think something that's turned me off of some of the uh, motivation for the engagement, and and perhaps this is more American or. Americans in Israel uh, than it is in Australia, so maybe the context is different. But your opinion is is nonetheless very interesting. You know, I'm interested in hearing your opinion on it. Is that there's always been, and we talked about this with, Rus- with Russell Robinson a little bit on his episode. There's always been this feeling that all of the engagement that is going on is kind of just there to sort of scrape the bottom of the barrel and say we have to maintain Jews' interest in Judaism so that the people doesn't, you know, so that we don't lose Jews. Well, that's the survival so, that we were talking the survival. about survival, And now you got to go to thriving. Right. right? So in, in my mind, it's always been like, I don't like, okay, so we're smaller people, but we're more pure, we're more interested, we're more 
you know, we're, we're more, it's people that are democratically choosing to engage with something. Like, why do I, like I as, as me, Benny, I don't, I don't mind that there's a, and, and this is me not being a religious Jew. I don't mind that there's some disengaged Jew living in Oklahoma city. Like, is he a happy human being? Is he, is he cool? Yeah. Okay. Yalla. Like she, yeah. This is a, this is a really interesting point and something I was discussing last night with a, a, a friend of mine, a colleague, um, over a beer at the pub. And we were, we I shared a, it's an, it's a, it's a, the Midrash. Uh, it's a, it's a story around the Exodus from Egypt. And it actually, I think can segue us into a conversation a bit about Purim. Yes, that's sure. uh, obviously coming up, but the, the Midrash tells us that of this, this 600,000 Jews left Egypt. Um, but there was only 10% of all of the Jewish community in Egypt, that 90% of them chose to stay behind. And the Torah, for some reason, deals only with that 10%. And only the, the Torah and God and the chosen people and all of the fanfare, trumps, shofar sounds, thunder, lightning, miracles, is was for that 10%. And I heard a, an interesting, but I think perhaps will be an unpopular opinion, but it's very similar to yours, Benny, is that, you know, why are we, why are we worrying about the 90% that are opting out and not about uh, more investing more in the 10% that are opting in and choosing to thrive. Um, and I think that's a, it's a really interesting question. The, the problem is around literacy. The problem is that you can, I, I, people are not really opting out. Correct. Uh, some people are, but for many, they've never actually had the opportunity to opt in. Yeah. I, I, um, think, that's, I think that's yeah. what engagement is. And that leads me to the, the thing around Purim. I, you know, I don't know about you. When did Purim happen for you? Like when did when did I know it's happening on Thursday night, Friday? But like historically, <laughs> say, when did Purim happen know, for you? I know we have a strange time difference between us, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it hasn't happened yet. What, what do you mean? Right. When? What do you mean? When did it happen for us? Historically, like, like in your mind, where where is Purim on the in, on the spectrum of Jewish history? In, oh, you mean like wh- when did I first know about Purim, or when did when, when did where happen? do I think it? Ha- yeah, like when 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 do you think it happened in history? I'm asking like. In history, when did you think it happened? I mean, it happened after after the prophets. So, first temple-ish period, maybe kind of in that. So we know that it happened after the destruction of the temple because okay. the, we, the, there's the, Jews the in Iraq, so it has to be after. Out of, well, it, there there were Jews in Persia and Babylonia after the destruction of the first temple. That's why I'm saying okay. we know it's yeah. after the right. And 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 we know because the the the, the feasts, the the vessels that. Uh, Rosh was drinking out of and the party was all about the celebration of the destruction of the temple. So we have that. And we, I, I, mean, I haven't heard that not, actually. Oh, but that's, that's one of the reasons why in the verses around the Kalim, uh, we sing it in the tune of Eicha in a sad tune because huh. it is, because it's reminding us of the temple that was destroyed. We also know that uh, Mordechai, the pastor, the, the Megillah itself actually tells us that the main protagonist, the main actor Mordechai uh, was a, 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 from he came from Yerushalayim, right? Um, so the, my uh, growing up, I always thought that Purim was you know a generation or two generations after the destruction of Jerusalem. Hang on a second, Alon. Hang on a second for for our non-Jewish uh, listeners out there, mainly in India, <laughs> mainly in India, literally though all over the world. Can you just stop and and just give us a one minute of what is Purim and next week what it, just on the the most kind of basic level, what is most Jews around the world, what are we going to be celebrating and doing later this week and when this episode airs, actually? 
Yeah, so Purim is a, a very minor festival in the Jewish uh, calendar. It is a festival that commemorates and celebrates Jewish survival in Persia uh, against a, a, a nemesis, an enemy named Haman, Haman, um, and the salvation of the Jewish people through the actors of uh, Mordechai and Esther. Esther would become a, the queen of, of Persia um, with her husband Achashverosh, or King Xerxes, as he is known in Greek. Um, as, and, as he's known in the movie 300. <laughs> yeah, he's such a badass in that movie. Such a good movie. So good. So. Such a good movie. Um, and, and the festival is about is celebrating the survival and the victory um, against this, this nemesis. And it's really celebrated by firstly reading the scroll of Esther, the story, the book of Esther, um, which outlines the story. Uh, it, it includes the celebration and giving of gifts to our friends giving gifts to the poor so they can celebrate and having a, a, a feast, a, a meal. And that occurs this um, this Thursday night and, and Friday. And Sunday, if you and are you, living in a walled city such as Jerusalem. Correct. For all of your walled city uh, uh, listeners. <laughs> I think it's the, great, though, that the people in Jerusalem that don't live in the old city have also taken that upon themselves. Yeah. Like, we can't afford to live here, so we're going to celebrate it anyways. Like we, we can't afford to live in the old city, but we're close enough. Well, the city is a walled city. The basis of the city is a walled city. Sure. <laughs> but so is like every city in Europe, and they don't celebrate. They should. Should they? Anyone, no, sorry, any, any city that was walled um, at the time of Joshua celebrates permanent on a different... There you different go. Time. There so there are cities around the world that uh, that do have to celebrate uh, North Africa, um, different uh, different cities that that do have to celebrate on on second days. I think uh, I think in um, the Iraqi Jews used to celebrate primarily on on Shushan Purim because hmm. um, their cities were walled in the time of Joshua. There you go. So. <laughs> I, I, and I'll point out to to our listeners that, and maybe you can touch on this over time, and and I'm not even sure at what time. Purim has become, it didn't used to be this way, but it's become kind of like a, a Jewish Halloween in the sense that costumes we dress up in costumes and there's parades and merriment and you act like an imbecile. You're supposed to get drunk. drunk. You're actually supposed to get drunk to an extent, right? Right. So the whole theme of, of Purim is this, what we say in Hebrew, you're meant to flip everything on its head um, because the plan, which is so well laid out and so made so much sense and was surely going to succeed by this nemesis Haman was going to was flipped on its head at, at the last minute um, by a whole lot of different you know circumstances uh, and so at the same time we we, we commemorate that by, by flipping everything so I, I want to just jump back to the, my original point my original like statement about bring why I brought the Purim into the conversation here was Purim actually occurs after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, after the time in which the prophets go back to the land of Israel and start rebuilding the, the temple. The second temple. So, the second temple. So we're actually, Purim is not as much a story about um, Jewish survival in the diaspora, but a story about what, what can occur when we have a, 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 a huge fracture within the Jewish community. Um, and we, you know, both ideologically uh, and physically, that when that connection is lost, what can occur? Um, what can occur, you know, to the Jewish people? 
And I heard the most beautiful commentary the other day, which was what the, the opening line of the story is that we're talking about uh, this king who is a king of 127 provinces. Of an empire. Uh, it, it, this whole empire. And it repeats this a number of times uh, throughout the story. And the commentary said, what this comes and teaches us is that no matter where there were Jews in those 127 empire, you know, countries, states within yeah. the empire, and countries within this empire, at, by the end of the Megillah, they realized the importance of that unity. And only through unity were we successful, only through connection. So when I think about Jewish engagement today, I'm, I'm actually not, um, I'm not thinking about how do we, how do we make people religious or how do we give them extra text. I care deeply about how we ensure the development of unity, of connection, of empathy across communities. Mm. And for me, the importance of engagement and, and, and investment in, in keeping people Jewish is because I believe that through community, we're able to be more empathetic human beings. And I think that the biggest sin of, of modernity and, post, and postmodernism is that we've not created a good enough response to the breakdown of community. Uh, we haven't. It's fascinating. Community yeah. has not developed something to replace the, the, the issue that individualism tried to break down, which was community is not as important as, as me. And we haven't created a response. And that's why I think every single dollar, every single effort needs to go into that. Whether it's religious, whether it's cultural, it's got to be around bringing community back. Yeah. And if we can create a global community, and you know, uh, Dan writes an, a very, very impactful line in one of his reports. I've been using it as, as a, a moment. Of, <laughs> You're of the one person who read it. We need to great thoughts in my paper this week. Perhaps COVID has allowed us to see a globe, the rise of a, a, a non-denominational movement uh, and community across the Jewish world. Um, where people are connected in a borderless space uh, and are deeply empathetic with what's happening. There's a reason why I'm on this podcast, right? It's not just yeah. because Dan and I met, but it's because having your listeners, your listeners hearing about Australia and New Zealand Jewry and the things that are going on in this side of the world is important to you because it bridges the divide across the Jewish world. It creates you know, empathy and connection. Um, I said two weeks ago, I got up at three o'clock in the morning to uh, teach a whole uh, bunch of Israeli teachers about the Australian Jewish community and the demographics here and, and the challenges and hear from them the challenges that are occurring within the Israeli school system. All of these things are about creating uh, stronger ties between people across the world. And that I think is the essence of Purim. And it's why the entire manifestation of our ritual of Purim it's very physical. Let me ask it's not you. Spiritual. Let me ask you this: as a as a rabbi and as a spiritual person, do you see some sort of uh, intention in COVID nineteen and in in making us uh, do this with one another, and making us more connected? Is there a cause and effect sort of a thing? Is look, I, I'm, a, get... I'm I'm a Maimonidean. I'm a Rambam yeah. uh, enthusiast. I am a halachic rationalist. I don't I don't I, I don't actually view myself as very spiritual. Um, it's perhaps a floor of mine, but 
I, I don't I don't believe that things happen things like that happen for a reason. I don't you know the Rambam Maimonides says that the rules of nature were set in the first six days of creation, and days doesn't mean twenty four hour periods. It's the first six periods of creation, um, and everything beyond that, the, the miraculous moments that we talk about in the Torah and, and throughout Jewish history, are not when God decided to create uh, fire out of on a bush. It's the, the the miraculous moment is when he clicked his finger and it happened at that time. It was already brought into the code of nature. So there's no cause and effect. I don't think that there, it's there. These issues of, of pandemics and plagues occur. I don't want to ascribe any sort of religious um, sense. But I will say that, you know, and I said this at the very beginning of our, of our conversation, um, my hope, my very sincere hope, is that the lessons learned within the COVID crisis uh, the, the positive ones and the negative ones, I hope that they're here to stay. I hope that we have become a more empathetic, caring, um, committed society of human beings than what we were before. So so it's interesting, and I'll tie, I want to tie back to something we were talking about before, because we do see such a yin and yang right now. We see on the one hand, the impact of COVID-19 and the, the ability that our technology has given us to be able to cohesively form into a global Jewish community. We're using, right now we're talking to you in Australia, before we talk to people in the United States, we've talked to people in Europe, you know, we're, we're reaching out and people are listening all around the world. This is a positive development. I think that we can all agree right. on that. On the other hand, there was a part of this conversation where we were talking about social media, uh, and and Dan and I talk about this a lot, whether it's on the show or with our with our friends and family, which is that that same technology or that same culture of technology has also given us the ultimate echo chambers. And what better yeah. example of that that you know we were talking about the fact that you know there are people that are you know forming echo chambers of. I have a physical ailment and I'm in this Facebook group of I have a breathing problem and what does it mean for me? And then there's a need for interns in med school to infiltrate these groups to try to, you know, make sure that people don't form this opinion of, of, of what's going on that could, be, that could be based on misinformation or disinformation or whatnot. And I, and I often say that the echo chamber is definitely one of the biggest symptoms of, of, of kind of this downfall of civil society where we where we have completely and totally thrown all respect or deference to nuance out the window and we only want to associate with like-minded individuals and if that's you know gotten to a place where the medical profession is worried to the point where they're infiltrating groups because they don't want people to to develop all alternative universes of of thought i mean I guess this is one of those points where it's like, I mean, we try not to use profanity on the podcast, but like, fuck, like, like how, what? Like you, you can't we, even. We're th there, man. We're there. I, like, been, well, like, what's the next step? Yeah. Are we going to have a group of people who are like, you know, I don't believe that the pilots flying this airplane know how to do their job. I read a thing. I played Microsoft Flight Simulator. I know better than him. I should go in there and we, show him how to do his job. We, like, we, we are there in a lot of ways. And, and, you know, one of the things that I've written about, uh, and a lot of people, you know, I obviously didn't make this up, is is that we live now in an age, <clears throat> I think in previous episodes we, we've uh, referred to it as at one point in our society, okay, here in Israel we used to call it Madurat Shevet, okay, the the communal campfire um, or, or the nightly news, right? We all, uh, any of us over, I think, 30, remember a time when there was the nightly news or maybe three competing stations and they all more or less told the same thing. Whether it was biased or not, 
It didn't matter. We all got the same basic chunk of information about what is happening in the world. Go and form your opinions from there. And what you're talking about, you know, is something that, that all, I think worries a lot of people. And, and and there's good and bad to it. And that's we've become a society, you know, in the Jewish world and kind of the sociology world where I kind of sit on the overlap is like we talk about it as hyper curation of our experiences, right? You, you're not listening to the radio anymore. You're building your own playlist, Okay. So there's places where it's useful, Netflix, right? I go and watch what I want. I don't need to turn on the TV and, oh, there's this is the lineup on TV and I can watch it or not watch it. No, I can go now and access through, here we only have Netflix, but Netflix, Hulu, whatever, whatever is where you live, I can Netflix, I can access anything I want and I can now build my own experience. And people are doing that ideologically. People are doing that with news, which is where it gets dangerous. I've seen people doing it with COVID-related information, which is why we said at the beginning of the show, which is why we now have this segment with the information from Dr. Natan Davidovich um, to try to combat you know, fake news and misunderstandings. And yeah, it's, it's a huge challenge of our time is, is that people are building these echo chambers for good and bad. Um, when we're talking about borderless, uh, when I wrote that about borderless communities uh, alone, and it's something I want to I want to dive into more in my own research and writing. You know, there's an upside and a downside to it. So, if I'm a Jew or not Jew, whoever, if I'm if I'm whatever, okay, here in Israel, in Europe, in America, in Japan, it doesn't matter. And I happen to hear of this incredible rabbi in Sydney, Australia. His name's Alon Meltzer. Okay, and he's giving, uh, not in your case because uh, because because you are Shabbat observant, but but let's say those rabbis who are not Shabbat observant and who upload their services and sermons and and whatever, or Orthodox rabbis who upload their their um, their Torah study sessions, which is something that's huge right now. Okay, what if that Alon Meltzer in Sydney, Australia, I connect to him a lot more than I do to Rabbi who so and so in my community, Josh Weinstein. That's probably his name. I actually have a good friend named Josh Weinstein. Um, <laughs> and I have, a, I, have a, I have a Josh Weinstein, I have a Josh Weinberg. <laughs> that, that's both the beauty and the curse, right? Right. And, and I think in every, in every instance of technology, you see, you see that, that double edge of the sword, right? You, you never had the car accident until you invented the car. Uh, it, it, it didn't exist. And we we see though we see that you know the um like the butterfly effect really occurring within every technological advancement i think the issue that we're sitting you know right now is that in some ways this ultimate reality that we've created online um this it's an almost an alter ego to what is our lived experience it's parallel Um, universes you know yeah well alone alone what do you i mean what, what do you th- where do you think this goes? I mean, you're in Australia right now. We were talking before about the impact of what's going on with social media, Facebook, and the Australian government and, and its impl- impact on you. Um, you know, we've talked about the good, we've talked about the bad. Are we gonna are are we gonna be okay? Are we gonna figure it out, or is it gonna spiral out and we're gonna wait until our artificial intelligence overlords take over and put us in our place. Why do you always go there? I'm just saying it's, it's, it's Why do you because it's, it's what it's what it's what Be- Bezos wants. Bezos? Bezos. Bezos? I think it's Bezos. I don't I don't know. I don't know what the consequence I don't know what the the the, the end game is. I 
I'm, I'm hopeful that that we use it responsibly. Um, the reality is that our AI overlords are already over us. Like they're, they're overlording. <laughs> it's like my phone. Yeah. Uh, by the end of this conversation, I'm going to be open up my Facebook feed and I'll have nine different new types of advertisements trying to sell me beard oil because I'm talking with Dan Fifalafel, uh and in Israel and he's got a beautiful beard. That's the reality. Really like I, it's, it's crazy. I, Amazon uh, I can send you things before you even know that you that you need it. It's I can nuts. unlock it's my nuts. house from my phone. It's just like it's crazy. Um, I. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I do know that some for for some amazing reason the world has this incredible way of re, of recalibrating itself, um, and we see this throughout history in many different ways. Um, sometimes with, you know, drastic consequence and shalom, like God forbid that the consequences are, are like things like the plague, you know, Black Death and things like that that occurred throughout history. But the reality is that at some point, if things start getting too bad, there's got to, there is some sort of natural reset that occurs. Um, and, you know, again, I, I, I look at COVID and, and in some ways I see that, like I see that the, the, sh- the shift from individualism, from highly curated Instagram videos to real, like sort of more real life where the people are talking online yeah. about they're showing things in a, People are talking about their troubles, the idea of mental health issues. Suddenly it's been talked about as a, like the taboo has been broken right, yeah. because of it's not shameful. So there, in a sense, this huge reset. And I wonder, uh, you know, are we going to see that? I think I think the Trump years uh, for, you know, Trump did, um, Trump actually did a number of very good things, but he also did crazy things and himself was like the rhetoric, rhetoric and discourse was out of control, right? Um, and I'm very much on the center left like that's very very much where i stand but i can acknowledge when people do do uh, positive things um the the trump world effectively allowed us for a for a, a reset or, or an opportunity for a reset um to change the hopefully change the way in which conversations occur yeah now america in itself i think one of the interesting things is that the veil of the american dream has lifted that that promise that America is going to be this shining light on a hill um, was was I think a very thin veil for a long time um, a promise that people didn't really actually believe in um, didn't act towards and I think for the rest of the world we've finally seen that there are inherent problems in American society and that perhaps we have to take a step up not allow America to be the only thought leader in the sort of global political world and mm. the global mo- world of morality and science and ethics um, you know I, I think the the issues that people talk about today of you know that trump exposed or trump created trump created issues that's that's a ridiculous understanding yeah trump created many had many problems um the systemic issues within american society they were um, there where lot of these problems those are generational sure. they are deep-seated and there's that i i think it's th- i'm thankful that the veil has been lifted in a way um, because i think it offers an opportunity to 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 expose you know leaders like jacinda ardern from new zealand who created before covid a, a an entire country's budget okay small small country but a budget based on the welfare 
of its citizens, not to create a welfare state, but to ensure that mental health was funded, to ensure that we were having the bigger yeah. conversations around empathy and connection between community, to ensure that the divide between you know those who had and those who had not was was much smaller. And there's a long way to go in a place like New Zealand as well. Um, but I think there is an opportunity for the world to reset itself in terms of its discourse, ideological you know pathway. And, yeah. and ultimately the way in which we connect as human beings to one another. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I agree. And, and I think we can all agree that, agree that looking at a prime minister who's younger than me of a country um, and slightly older than you is just obnoxious. It's like, come on, it's like, she's a prime minister and, and, and I'm just yeah, and look, and, trying and to her squeak rise by. To, to being a prime minister was, was um, perhaps happenstance and coincidence um, she wasn't the leader of the of the party when she, um, you know, the very beginning of that election cycle, her, her leader stepped down and she was uh, catapulted to, to the leadership thinking that they wouldn't get more than you know 35% of the vote and she ended up being the prime minister. Um, but it's what you do with it, yeah. right? Um, she took her her very real feelings of empathy, of of care, of devotion to to the people around her and we can agree with her politics and her way in which she operates and different things and you know every every politician is uh, is worthy of scrutiny um but the care and empathy that that those were the tools that she took with her and i i, I see the same with biden you know i read i read stories there are so many issues with biden i don't like being i don't like being political um i, I care much more about being humanistic but the story, the one thing that we see, and I don't think anyone disagrees with it, is the the stories of empathy of yeah. Biden yeah. The, you know, sitting at a shiver house uh, for a member of his community when he was a senator. Those things, that's what leadership is. Sure. Leadership is taking your humanity and amplifying it to lead and move people down that path. And to have a vision of which path you want to lead them, positive vision. I think too many politicians are are stuck on fear and, and divide and conquer. And we see it here in the Israeli story too much. And, and it's, it's, you know, yeah. where is the, first of all, I'd love to see a young politician in Israel. Um, they, they can't seem to, to crack the, the threshold. Um, but, uh, but I'd love to see politicians from right or left here or, or whatever mixtures of right and left we have, who, who has a positive vision as opposed to, trashing others or any fear mongering or, or any vision or any vision um i, I want to jump back to the forum for a second here um you know one of the things we like to do kind of on, on the show around holidays is i'm always fascinated and i think you are too about how we look the myth we have of holidays the 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 way we were brought up to celebrate or understand certain holidays um, what our scriptures tell us of holidays versus what we know historically true or not true of those holidays. And I think that's always kind of a fun road to, I, I like to go down that road at least. Um, are you familiar with Rabbi Benny Lau here in Israel? Yeah, I've got his books right behind me. So, so Benny Lau, for those of you who are not familiar, is a, um, a well-respected modern Orthodox rabbi in Israel. And, and he's also a well-respected historian um, of kind of the... Um, early rabbinic period of the temple, the second temple period. Um, and he's written a lot of, of fantastic historical books. And I think they exist in English, right? You have them in English. We've, the, the, his main series, The Sages. The Sages, uh, yeah. It's, 
is a four volume set from Corinne Publishers. Yeah. So I, it's just fantastic stuff. And um, I, I heard a wonderful Purim lecture that he gave about the actual history, what we know or think about Purim. I'd be, I'd be glad to get your take on this if you've seen this elsewhere. I think it's only in Hebrew. But um, he talks about, so, so the main character is Mordechai, right? And he's kind of, he's painted in Jewish tradition as the this the leader of the Jewish community, the Jewish sage. Um, and and you mentioned, actually, I hadn't heard this before, you mentioned that the feast that was happening at the beginning of the story was was based around the conquer and destruction of the temple. I, I heard in this lecture that um, Mordechai or Morduk, okay, as he would have, because Mordechai is not originally a Hebrew name. Um, so it comes... Marduk. Marduk, right. It comes from the Persian name. Um, um, was one of the competing kind of leading generals in the Persian Empire at the time and they had just finished some kind of uh, a large campaign and they were kind of feasting. I hadn't I hadn't heard it was the campaign against Jerusalem. I had heard... I, I don't know what campaign I heard it was, but... Um, and, and Haman was a competing... They were fighting the guy from 300. <laughs> with their shirts off in there. Yeah. Um, the 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 goat man and the guy with the scissor arms, right? Oh, that guy was awesome. Oh, what is that? It's a scissor arm guy. Where, where does that come from? Edward Scissorhands was inspired. That was the original Edward. Yeah, Scissorhands. Uh-huh. Like a tubby, bald Edward Scissorhands, not Johnny Depp. No. Okay. Um, do you do you remember Edward Scissorhands? Yeah. <laughs> I never got that movie, <laughs> but um, um, he and Haman were actually competing generals. Edward Scissorhands. Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> Edward Edward Scissorhands was a competing general. Haman and Morduk, Mordechai, were competing generals, and the whole kind of backstory maybe even had n- not nothing to do with the Jews or kind of this like anti-Semitic spin that we tell ourselves. But he posited, Benny Lau, posited that um, it was kind of the internal politics of of the Persian court and one general against another, and how was Haman going to try to get rid of his main rival? Morduk, and uh, and this whole plot was kind of more centered around that, and not, you know, this anti-Semitic planned Holocaust of the Jews. Have you heard that? I haven't, but it makes a lot of sense, and it makes a lot of sense when we start looking at, you know, what happens at the end where where Mordechai is raised up to being the second in command. Uh, also, why why Mordechai was able to hear the murder plot of the king. Yeah. Uh, he had to have been in the in a, in a court in the inner circle, this, right? For, for the story to work at all, um, I, I look. I find it really interesting when we when we start looking at um, the history of of things because, in some ways, it takes away the the glow of, of 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 the festivals and of our traditions. You know, the the idea of Hanukkah, for example, that the the first time the the mention of the menorah um, of it's the light the miracle lighter. of oil. Is many many generations later. Um, it was very much a, a, a victory of of ideology and and, and might. Um, yeah, and we had on it, ra- it, we had on uh, a, a professor of history and Rabbi da- uh, Jeffrey Wolf. And so, if anyone wants to uh, check out that episode where we get into the origins of Hanukkah, and it was, I think we literally talked for two hours just about the origins yeah, of Hanukkah. It was, really cool. it was, it was incredible. But, I think it runs the risk of taking away some of that glow, some of that specialness. But at the same time, it also positions Jewish communal involvement, Jewish Jewish connection to faith and and to to our to our traditions in a historical reality. Because, and I think that's incredibly important for young Jews today. Um, because again, 
the idea of relying on miracles and miraculous occurrences and 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 a you know a god that you cannot see is is becoming less uh, and less tasteful or or palatable mm -hmm. um and so positioning things within the historical context is very very important um and so when we look at and i you know i, I was fascinated about you know the timeline of Purim, and i heard a fantastic lecture from uh, dr tova ganzel uh sharing sharing the historical timeline of Purim, and, I, and that was fascinating you know rabbi jonathan sachs writes about moses um we always think moses is this hebrew name of you know his the the daughter of Pharaoh pulled him out of the water. But Jonathan Sachs says, no, look at the look at his look at Ramses. Ramses in its root has Moses. Moses, Masses, just means prince. He was the unnamed, unguarded prince of Egypt because Ramses was the prince of Ra. And oh. all, all these other people had these you just, so you have to look at the historical context. Look at where where we say Moshe was in, in a in the story of egyptian society he was a masses he was a prince in, in this he was, in this he was the original period. prince he walked around with like purple velvet suits and that's right yeah. sorry so you, no. I, I, in some ways i think that understanding the history <laughs> creates the relevancy for us right and so i think that's that can be very important wow um how, how are you going to be celebrating Purim in this kind of crazy year. What do we do with Purim this year? Well, he, he seems to be going to pubs with his friends and having beers. And like, I think life is a lot more. You know, Purim was the beginning of the end for us last year. Yeah. And, you know, thank God. Thank God. Um, as I said, you know, we've been going, it's now 35 days in New South Wales, but we haven't had a COVID case. It's been, uh, you know, I think there's one, maybe one case a day in Melbourne and link, they know exactly where it's from. Um, it's the, the same world person. Is relative, relatively open. Um, I think the biggest challenge with Purim this year is that it falls on a Friday and that makes it very difficult to get everything done. Um, I'm looking forward to, to spending time with my, my shul in a very social way and, and engage with my members. I'm looking forward to, to, you know, going back to the friends and families. I don't have any family in this, in Sydney. I'm, you know, my family is around the world and I haven't been able to see my, my mother. Uh, she hasn't seen her grandchildren. Haven't had that support for, for 18 months. I'm looking forward to going to the, to the families that have really helped me out and, and giving them Mishloch Manot and thanking them for their support over the last year. Um, I, yeah, it's, I, I think, the, and, and I think the other thing I'm, I'm going to be paying much more attention to my gifts of the poor. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I used to give the bare minimum, you know, ten dollars, so that there was a, they had a meal. I I will be giving considerably more, not because I have more to give, but because I think that if anything, last has told me, you know, the organisations that that distribute aid and help are some of the most important in our Jewish world and 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 generally in the world. Um, and I think if we've got an opportunity to support an organization like Meir Panim or other food banks around the world on this on this festival, especially that is so food orientated, um, that, that's an opportunity to to really make a difference. So the, I think that's the, that's what I'm doing. It's going to be much more low key than it was. I'm not going to any big parties or anything. Um, but 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 I'm 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 trying to I'm trying to move the Jewish festivals now to a real place of meaning um, more than more than what what was. You know. 
Pesach last year, I was able to really change the way in which my kids received the Sedo. Um, Rosh Hashanah, I opened our dubbing. We were open. We were, you know, we had inside and outside services. Uh, we were severely restricted in numbers, but I started the dubbing on the first night of Yom Tov saying, you know, because in Melbourne, they were in lockdown. I said, we have the ability to shoulder this on, like shoulder the Jewish world's prayer on our on our shoulders as a shul. Like we're small, but and insignificant in the bigger picture, but we have the ability to talk to God. Uh, and so I think just trying to find meaning and new meaning and, and create new relevancy is going to be key going forward in all of our festivals. Amazing. Amazing. And yeah, I, I, the past year has, you know, for those of us who celebrate the holidays in whatever way we celebrate it, right. Um, whether it's a family uh, experience, whether it's a religious experience, whether it's a communal experience, um, we've had to figure out new ways to celebrate. Um, I've, you know, Pesach last year, I did a family Seder for the first time and I can't remember when. And my kids are old enough that we could really engage with them and it was incredible. Uh, and we'll have to see how we do Purim this year. Things are starting to open up. Uh, we might have outdoor reading, but you know, you're not going to have the big parties. And, and and I think, like you said, it's a good time to stop and, and rethink and, and try to find new meaning in things. And sometimes a, a shakeup is, is good, is good for that. But look, I, I, you know, I, I remember hearing from a rabbi early on in the pandemic, um, and he was talking about, you know, he, everyone was cry, you know, crying out about the fact that the weddings had to be so small. And this rabbi turned around and said, you know, wouldn't it be so nice if all our weddings were so small? Not small in numbers. Intimate, but right? Let's stop spending $100,000 on a wedding. Let's start getting our priorities right. You know, when, in, the, in the Talmud, we're told that, um, that I can't remember which, which rabbi, I want to say it's Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, but I think it might be Rabbi Gamliel. I'm not good with names. Change the whole. <laughs> Let's pretend um, like uh, we don't know anybody. Yeah. Change the whole funeral procession. It used to be riches and and the, the would hire uh, huge uh, people to do processions and and he said no, bury me in shrouds, and now that became the norm. And so the, so the, there was no difference between the poor person and the rich person. And I think we have the ability to to shift the materialism of of what is pre predominantly within the diaspora community, um, especially the diaspora modern Orthodox and to the liberal down, you know, reform. It's, it's a very, very material community. A lot of money, a lot of, it's a lot of value and possessions. And I, I think this is an opportunity for us to reshape that as well. Awesome. So uh, look, we, we covered so much and, and there's so much we, we didn't get to cover uh, at all. We, we definitely wanted to talk a little bit about food, food stuff with you. I think we'll we'll have to save that uh, maybe for the oh, next. Oh time. Well, you you want to? Yeah, hang, hang on. So so yeah, we didn't get to talk about this. So the three of us are foodies. Three of us are foodies. You, you're a trained chef. Holy crap! Right. We showed up exhausted because the for anyone who's traveled to Australia, it is literally the most insane. And, and of course, I'm not comparing ourselves to the times when people had to get on ships and they were like a different family uh, by the time they arrived. You know, someone died. Well, those people someone, are all dead anyway. Three kids were born and four people died by the time <laughs> they reached the destination. But uh, it was like a, literally 24 hours of just flying. And uh, we show up for Shabbat dinner at uh, what looks like an art gallery in the Talon's house because he's got impeccable taste in design <laughs> um, among his many skills. And there was this like, the imagine the best like catered the kind of meal you've had. 
And this guy cooked for like 30 people. It was insane, like ridiculous food. So he turned out on top of all of his uh, freaking renaissance skills, he's a, a damn good cook. And when we traveled up to Cairns, um, Quiche. You brought, <laughs> we devoured this quiche on the airplane. Like, you made this. First of all, you got to send us that recipe. Do you have a recipe for that? Can you write it out? I don't have a recipe. It's, okay. It comes out from it was like, brain. It was like a caramelized onion goat cheese quiche that he made. And he like pulls it out of his like bag. <laughs> He's like handing Miriam and I like handfuls of quiche on the airplane at like two in the morning. And we're like, <laughs> fantastic. We're, we're going to put it on the show notes. Okay. You're going to send us the quiche, right? recipe a link to it and we're gonna put it on the show notes um but but yeah um what what, what's your favorite thing to cook lately that you're kind of into cooking i really just jumped into uh creating degustations um my partner and i every month every six weeks we host a degustation for different friends what what yeah you're gonna station for a five six course meal um you can check out my instagram and what's what's your instagram but um it's about it really it's about bringing 12 people together usually from disparate backgrounds and and sitting down at the table for an extended period of time and did some really cool things around like new new year's thinking back around 2020 i'm doing one about we're doing one this saturday night on purim um and created five dishes uh under the topic you know under the different characters uh, Haman, Esther, Mordechai. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I just I, I love small plates. I love art on on a plate, and, and <laughs> that's yeah, I love doing it. What, so what what are you making for each of the characters? Oh, and you're gonna have to uh, I have to find it then. Let's see, let's see if I've got it. It, it was it was really cool. You know, when I travel when I travel abroad. I become a vegetarian and at best I eat fish. And that's kind of, you know, as someone who keeps kosher, that's kind of my way to like travel, but still be able to eat everywhere. And Stephen Shalowitz wants you to be a vegan. I know he does. Um, and, and traveling with alone, he's a, he's a lot more stringent on, on kosher. So we, the first thing we do, we get there and we go to this grocery store, which is cool. Cause I, and, and by the way, if, if, if you have time, whenever you travel, go to a grocery store. It's just really cool to see a grocery store in the country where you travel to and he's taken me through and he's like, okay, we're, you know, we bought all the stuff. Things that I wouldn't have assumed were not kosher. Turns out they were really not kosher. And I'm glad I had a local guide. Um, Tim Tams. I wanted to buy Tim Tams. You know, the the crazy good Australian chocolate. Mm-hmm. So it turns out I couldn't. But then for like the course. Well, we have them here. We have the kosher version. Yeah, they're here. only kosher in Israel. They literally make them kosher, send them to Israel. And if you want to buy them, you have to import them back from Israel. That's dumb. What, what's not kosher about them? They have Beetlejuice in it. Beetlejuice. If you say that three times. Beetlejuice. <laughs> Beetlejuice. <laughs> so, I, I, look, I, I just found the menu. I'm happy to share the, the Purim feast and maybe it can inspire some of the listeners. Yeah, that's, over, a, that's a cool idea. Give us a couple highlights. Um, and, and maybe, you know, we'll end on that good tasting note. Sounds good. Um, but as I, as I said, I'm, I, and it's about, again, creating relevancy. And, and this is my friends, but it's, it's thinking about every, you know, how we... Um, create the lens of Judaism as a holistic experience within our, within our Jewish world. Um, so I, I'm starting with an amuse-bouche, which is a small little pup, a little mouthful. My favorite, um, my favorite word in all of culinary <laughs> anything is amuse-bouche. I, know, I love it. <laughs> so that, that's the 
Basti, which is a chili and lime ceviche. Oh. Um, I've then got the starter, which is the Mordechai. Um, and so everything is everything is based on the character. So the chili and lime ceviche is like very rebellious, very spicy, very like passionate, like Vashti was. Did you, cut off, did you cut off the fish's head? Pardon? Did you cut off the fish's head? <laughs> then I have the Mordechai, which is the burnt onion tartlet and a Parmesan twill. And that's, you know, Mordechai sat in the sackcloth and ashes um, in his protests against what was happening. Then I have the Achashverosh, the, the king, which is a Persian fish croquette with a tomato ragu, something really rich and hearty. Um, the main course is the ester, which is an olive oil poached salmon. Uh, and that is, you know, we're told that um, Esther, as part of the process to become the wife, the queen of Persia, had to go through the the beautification rituals the, of the tamrukim, yeah, oils. And finally, they the dessert. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he poached her. <laughs> I like that. Um, the dessert is haman, which is a milfoir. Uh, with uh, sort of a, a layered pastry, but it's going to be in a it's going to be in a triangle like a hamantaschen <laughs> uh, with salted caramelized figs. So Ooh, that's, that's wow, salted caramelized. Figs. That sounds so good. The entire menu sounds unbelievable. And I'm sure you're yeah. going to take pictures and uh, put them on your Instagram. If if people want to reach out to you and find you, uh, people want to follow you. How, what how what is your Instagram? How can they get in touch? Look, there's two. There's my personal Instagram, Instagram, which is Alon Meltzer. Always welcome to reach out. Um, but also, if you want something a little bit more intellectual and a bit more um, bringing Jewish text and relevancy to the to the world, go to Insta Talmud, I N S T A Talmud, um, and that's a my exploration into Daf Yomi, the daily uh, reading of of Talmud. It's the second time I'm doing it, but this time I put out every page. I put out a Instagram post the modern commentary on on something that came out of the page of Talmud of the day. Fantastic. I'm, I'm going to actually follow that because uh, I always say to myself as kind of goals, I want to do kind of like a daily study, even if it's just a few minutes. And uh, and I'm always looking for good resources for that. Yeah. And, and awesome. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll end kind of, I was going to say something before yeah, the food con. I was just going to say on a, on a personal note, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of similarities that, we all are going through right now because of this period. But the thing that for me has always been the hardest, and, and I kind of heard it in, in what you were saying when you were talking about how the pandemic's been affecting you and, and you kind of glossed over it, but I, 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 it made me think about me. You know, you have three daughters. I have two kids. You, you haven't seen your, your mom in, you said, 18? Yeah, not, 18 months. None 18 of us have months. seen our parents in about that. I long. haven't yeah. seen my, I mean, I was fortunate to have seen my, my mother last February because I was on a business trip in the States, but that's already over a year ago. I haven't seen my father since the previous August. My, my kids have aged almost two years in number, not full two years, but, you know, in, in since uh, the last time they saw my parents. It is, for me, the single most difficult aspect of this pandemic, and I was unemployed for a big portion of the pandemic, so it's like, that's even yeah. worse than that. And, um, you know, I feel you, man. I, I don't know what else to say here. That's got to be really, really, really hard. And you're kind of in this, pl this place, like, like we are here in Israel, too. I mean, Australia is much, much bigger, but, like, we're both kind of on an island, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and we can't get there. The airports are closed. You can't go if you want to, and, and they've been... You know, our family connections have been reduced to the way we're talking to you, which is on a screen. 
and and I don't know what you do to con- you know maintain the connection for your kids and your and your and your mom. Uh, you know, I I have my mom read my kids bedtime stories every night since the pandemic began. Um, that's something we just decided to start doing. But that's it. It's like grandma reads stories, um, and it's it's really really tragic. So my question for you is going to be when you do get to fly, um, and you can go. I'm assuming your mom's in New Zealand, right? Correct. Yeah, she is. What's what is something that you're looking forward to doing with your girls and your mom? You know, people ask me this question, and I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't I don't know. I'm okay not flying. I used to jump on an airplane. I once flew to New York for a 14 hour business meeting and flew home <laughs> after 14 hours. That's New York. Like it took me a day of flying time each way. Um, I, I, I'm very lucky that, and I think we all are that we, we live in a world with the technologies that we've got. Um, you know, can, imagine the Spanish influenza, uh, back in 18, 1918 and the isolations that occurred. Uh, sure. even localized, but they didn't, they didn't have the technology that we have. So I, I don't know. I don't, I'm, I'm not, I don't, I think my kids and, and my connection with my, my mother has probably been enhanced um, over this period. I think we've gained new ways in which to talk to, talk to each other, um, developed many deep connections with a whole bunch of people across the world. My, I've traveled the world so many, in so many ways that my connection um, my connections with people is, are really important and, and they, and they span the globe. And those have, I think, been amplified because of, of COVID, those connections. I think, look, my, my mum was meant to come and run a half marathon with me last, last May. We, she had tickets, we were ready to go and it got canceled and, uh, it's moved to this May. I don't think she's going to be able to come even in this May. I don't think she'll be able to come until after, at least after October, I think they'll keep the borders shut until then. Um, I, I, I'm looking forward to like having Seda with my mom, with yeah. my brothers. Um, I think that, I think like that's, that's what I want. I'm not like gone in the days with a 30, 40 person Seda that I used to run. Um, the intimate Seda is, is, is very important and very much real. It's like very, very powerful. Um, but it, it, will, it will be nice to, to sit on the couch and, and have, have Seda on the couch with my mom and my, my brothers and my sister. I mean, my sister had a baby like the baby turned one, wow. like, and none of us have seen it. Like it, it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's crazy. Yeah, my sister had a kid too. Um, didn't turn one though. That's, that's crazy. Like, that's yeah, crazy. it's nuts. Yeah, nuts. And, and probably will be two until when, when we actually see her. So um, I think there's, a, there are a lot of challenges and you've got to make do. Yeah. You got to make do. Keep so, on keeping on. Fantastic. Um, I like to tell people one of my favorite things about us doing the show is that uh, it, it lets at least me reconnect. You know, you're getting to meet a lot of people. I'm getting to reconnect with a lot of people that, um, awesome people that I got to meet. Um, even people who once told me that we, you're gonna forget about me the second uh, that the trip's right. over. Um, but, did Alonso did uh, know, know Chase? Yes, Chase was also on that uh, group. Um, <laughs> and the the Disney musical singing that took place uh the disney musical singing that took place in in um in your house um so so we will end this with thanking you so much for being on the show and while my dog while my dog goes crazy in the background here um thank you for waking up early and sharing with us your insights and your knowledge and your optimism um and uh, we hope to keep in touch 
And uh, we thank all of our listeners for joining us on Juanced. Absolutely. So keep in touch, everybody. And, and, and uh, for those who are celebrating Purim, have a wonderful Purim Sameach. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com. And feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.